<laughs> we did, yeah, we don't know what about Starsky and Hutch. It, 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 oh, uh, hello. This is um, Mitch Hampton, Journey of an Esthete podcast. And we have a very, very special episode, but not the way they use the term special in the TV of your episode. Um, <laughs> because we have two guests that have a great, great podcast that everybody should listen to. And it's called the Lawn 70s Podcast. And it's happening and it's heavy and it's about what's what's happened and where we are, how we ended up where we are today. And there's so much to talk about. So I want to invite on this uh, podcast. The guests are Alex and Matt. Hi, Matt. Hello. And Alex, I think is slightly older, correct? Hi, Alex. Uh, hello. Actually, uh, Matt and I are pretty close in age. Oh, Okay. Yeah. I, thought, yeah, I thought maybe one was a Gen Gen Xer and one was a millennial, but um, oh no, we're we're both Gen Xers. Okay, so we're all in the same. Okay, so yeah, I'm I'm probably the oldest one here, being fifty, just turned fifty six last week. Yes. So yeah. I had so I just listened to your rollerball episode. Okay, oh, that was a fun one. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Not only is it fun, but what's funny is a lot of the movies that you cover on your show are movies I saw as a little boy. Oh, lucky like, you. In yeah. theaters. So I saw Rollerball on 42nd Street with my dad, you know, when I was maybe six years old. I saw the crazies in a you know in a drive-in. I saw oh, right. and I saw Rabbit with Marilyn Chambers as a child, too. You know, and I think I saw that in Tampa, you know. Well, so it's it's interesting. Pretty... Yeah, it is, yeah. It's great to listen to these shows. But I guess I should start with some basic questions about, you know, I'm a 70s scholar, lay scholar. You guys both are, you guys care about the 70s or interested in the 70s as, as am I. You guys had Bruce Shulman on your show. I had Bruce Shulman on my show, and I, I was actually one of the first people to discover his work in 2001. And I actually did a story on him in his book back then for a newspaper and covered it. Um, and so it's interesting to see that his journey and, and our journey. But Talk a little bit how, well, first of all, how you got interested in the 70s as a concept and as a aesthetic, political, spiritual, you know, historical entity. And then talk a little bit about how that developed into this wonderful podcast. If you, whoever wants to go first is. Uh, so we're actually ahead, not, we're not lucky enough to have Bruce uh, actually as a guest on the show. Oh, okay. So you you definitely got one up, got one up on us on that. Uh, we'd love to have him on, but we haven't had any way to contact him. Oh, and uh, but we've been I'll kind try, of. I'll try of, to rectify that. I'll try to try to try to you know mention that would, that would be great. Um, but I think we're we're probably about eight or nine years younger than you, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. we really didn't experience the '70s proper uh, in any kind of an adult way, like. We didn't yeah. get to see those movies. Um, my my dad, who introduced me to movies and music, mm -hmm. was a, a little more into the early 80s stuff and then the 60s, like Soul. And mm -hmm. so I think, uh, well, I won't speak for Alex, but I think we were, we got into the 70s in high school as right. Like, uh, right. like it seemed like vintage then, even, even though it was you know, cl closer to when we were in high school than when we were in high school as to now, which is kind of mind blowing. But I mean, when you, when you mention high school, that's a seventies that opens up so much seventies artistic culture, right? Whether it's rock and roll high school or animal house or, well, that's yeah. college, but I mean, you know, sort of 
uh, on the edge over the edge with Matt Dillon and just all those movies come rushing to, to, to my consciousness hearing you mentioned that it's in high school. Now I was in high school. So I got interested in the seventies in high school and it was actually, no, I'm sorry, not high school, scratch that. Um, freshman year in college, which is close. Right. And I had a roommate and I had a dream about the seventies. I had this weird dream hmm. that, you know, that I had traveled back four years and, and I was in a Pinto or something. And there was some kind of a, I don't know, there was some kind of a drive-in movie and was with my dad. And there were the kids that used to hang out on the, and they used to sit on the dashboard of the, of Mustang, con, you know, convertibles and these Pontiacs, these kind of cars. And they would smoke weed. And of course I was, I was a boy. I was not, you know, doing anything like that then. And, right. but they were pretty liberal and they would do, they were, and I used to watch the adult, you know, the, to me, the adults grown up and things like that. And I woke up from this dream and I told my roommate at the time, Randy, about. he says, Mitch, you had a dream about the 1970s. So it's kind of weird that, you know, in 85, this would have been, People were already thinking about the seventies as a concept. I've spoken too long, but go, go, go. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, the, I mean, that makes, that makes a lot of sense because, um, you know, as you get into the mid eighties, you, uh, you know, pop culture takes a different direction. So people look back sure. at the seventies fondly, but, okay. um, I think we were just really into seventies music and movies yeah. in high school, but really I didn't get into the history of the seventies until, uh, much much later, when I went back to school, and I took a a class on the seventies on seventies history in the two thousands, and it was based on Schulman's book. Yeah, well, his isn't his book become a standard text in in most colleges or most universities? Isn't it like kind of like a a classic now? I think it is. Right? Yeah, I mean, it should be if it's not. It but... is, yeah, and I think it's much to him. I mean, I'm happy for him because that means sales for his book. And yeah, it it is. Happy to hear that. It is definitely hard to find an actual class on that this time period, though, in, uh, yeah. in the university. They tend to peter out in the 60s, and then they kind of consider everything that came after as an afterthought. Yeah. Well, they, they do it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You talk. Oh, first. no. I was just going to say, plus the 70s gets you know trashed on so much. It's, it's such like low-hanging fruit for people to say, oh, the fashions were terrible, and the economy was terrible, and this, that, and the other. So it's easy for a lot of that, you know, people making a big deal about the late sixties and all the social change. And then, and then the seventies just gets treated like this sort of disposable decade. So. And, and of course, as yeah. Bruce mentions in his very opening paragraph, people laugh at it. People say it's uneventful. Mm -hmm. I think yeah, we'll just... Deliver his thesis and ours all contraire. It's the most eventful, the most significant period of time in every way. And, um, and it's not just a joke. It's not just pet rocks and right. <laughs> Yeah. Right. So right. His, his book really was kind of the genesis of the yep. podcast. Probably, yeah. I don't know, five, 10 years later, I brought it up with Alex. Mm -hmm. It was kind of going around in my head. And really, over the past four years, we've pretty much um, done a deep dive on Shulman's book. I mean, we, we, we actually haven't gone through much of his actual arguments because I've always kind of felt like, that was his thing. He makes great arguments in that book as to why the long seventies is important, like 68 to, uh, I think he actually says maybe 82, but yeah. Um, 84 maybe. I don't know. Yeah. But yeah, we, um, we treat that. We have like sort of you, hard, you guys deal with that and ends for ours. Yeah. You guys deal with that very issue in every episode. For example, when you're covering movies from the early eighties, 
Yeah. And you mentioned like, well, this risky business or this this film, or you mentioned the first season of an 80s show that's it says everybody looks sort of 70s, like cheers, right? That, that yeah. Shelly Lawn's outfit or or mm-hmm. Dan Ted Dennis wearing an elephant collared shirt, you know, in the first season or something <laughs> like that. Or yeah. you know, and it's it's it reminds yeah. me a lot of um a lot of things like that in a, you know, how the early eighties is really the same as the seventies and how it's kind of, and, and with, and with movies too, think about a movie like used cars, right. From 1980 with Kurt Russell. Right. Jack Ward. And that movie is so seventies about those used car sure. sales. There's just, there's just nothing eighties about it remotely. You yeah. Know, it, it's funny that it's director would become Mr. Eighties with back to the future. Only if you directing well, back pe- to people years. use, I think decades as sort of a shorthand. You know, when people talk about the 60s, they're talking about like typically the last couple of years of it, unless Absolutely. it's something very specific like JFK or Absolutely. Marilyn Monroe or something Absolutely. like that. But they're, they're typically talking about the last couple of years. And by that token, you know, the 70s, there's often an aesthetic they're talking about. So if you show people like, the you know, the first season of Cheers or something um, from different strokes, for example, that oh, was yeah. in the 80s, people will look at like the hairstyles of sure, the kids sure. or the clothing and they'll say, Oh, that, that show must've started in the seventies. It's like, no, it's just, you know, it just hadn't become like the calculator watch and the neon colors of the mid eighties yet. Yeah. yeah. You're still, you're still in Browns and you're still in. in right. Tan. Yeah. The earth tones. And, yeah. and people have a lot of hair. It's amazing to me. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. It's amazing to me. These 14, 15 year old kids and some of these high school movies, movies made during that period, how much hair everybody had. It's I don't know. It's just, Something in the water, just I don't know. They just never nobody yeah. ever got a nobody ever got a haircut ever. Their their parents never yeah. got the haircut. You look at look at Adam Rich and Aiden's enough, you know, that that I had that same haircut, by the way. Everybody every boy that was his age, every <laughs> seven-year-old was forced by their by their mother usually to have that bowl cut that um what is it called? A bowl cut? Some kind of yeah, that, the bowl cut. Bowl cut when I had that hair, and you look at pictures of that hair, and it's like I think people hadn't figured out how to style long hair all that much. Like it it was still coming out of the idea of like guys growing out their hair. That was still kind of making a statement That's right. up to a certain point. So there isn't a lot of style to it. It's just like, Hey, look, I didn't cut my hair. You know, I didn't cut my sideburns either, you know? So right. some of that just comes from like the not maintaining right. any of that, just letting it go. Yeah. Well, uh, it, it's funny you mentioned that because, uh, it's interesting that these two podcasts linked up because um, a, a big part of how I view the this er, like time period, this little epoch, is yeah. is, is, is in aesthetic terms. Oh, of it, course, it's, it's really one cohesive aesthetic over over these years, sixty eight to eighty four, and Absolutely. then there's a drastic shift after, and even even before, uh, even you know from sixty seven to sixty eight, there there's there's definitely a shift. And there is, there is. So there's just something that you can feel about it that's different than the preceding and uh, following periods. Well, I see it as a feeling that's hard to articulate. Articulate, you know, like you, you guys are really see you, you, you two gentlemen in every episode. I'm hmm. just going to use examples. Um, sure. You approach you approach like a topic, and like I just you know one of the most recent things I listened to the two were the um, Rajneesh. Rajneesh. Yeah, uh, right. About the, the, the very unusual, sort of strange, new religious, sort of spiritualist movement that had downsides and upsides for, for, for its for you know for the people in it. Right. Um. And then what was the other? You had you had one. Was it Firefox or about Red Dawn? There's another. Yeah, recent, Firefox and Red Dawn. 
And then there was a more was something about the eighties or some, but any, any, but so my point not to be, not to be too um, circular, circulatory circles um, is that when you talked about um, this Rajneesh phenomenon, you guys did something I wish every podcaster would do. Like what I mean is that you kind of, well, first of all, you you didn't just jump into it. It's a very subtle thing. And you kind of start, and this is probably how, Matt, I think you introduce it usually. And then Alex, you'll, you, you start with like these, yeah. facts, you know, Often but there's that's how of, the breakdown is right. But when you do the breakdown, I found, and I had just watched that Netflix documentary, I think a year ago <laughs> it dropped. And I was thinking, I actually liked your episode more than that film. It's strange. I thought, well, no, that's, you know, that's nice. <laughs> well, because but the reason is that I think that film had more of an agenda. It's about the agenda up front. Sure. Right. Yeah. And it seems to be like in a show, you try not to do that or, or rather you, you do it subtly or it's not, you're more about, you're more about sort of reaching a conclusion from the facts given. Right. Yeah. I think that what, what happened is early on, I mean, the, the show has evolved over time uh, early on, since you said you've listened to uh, most of them, they, yes. they tend to be more like lectures and that's yeah. kind of how I envisioned it at first, very informative and yeah. factual. But then I think we realized over time that that was kind of boring. And huh. uh, so at some point we switched over to a different way of doing it where like a lot of these things are not necessarily, they're not like occult topics. They're things people know about, but, and, and so if people want to just know, about the movie rollerball they can just watch the movie sure. so we, we try to bring in some additional just kind of personal insight oh absolutely that you can't just get by watching the movie or reading a right. book about movies and so that is that's kind of the angle we've taken and so we right. we we definitely try to to add a little extra context and insight right. in every episode and at this point it's been it's been so long, so many episodes. It just, right. it just kind of happens. Well, I don't know about Alex, but I'll watch a movie. Yeah, and, sure. And I can almost not enjoy it because I'm constantly making connections and thinking, you know, this is really strange. What well, this, this is just like that other movie. Sure. Or like this is different than a movie from 1965 in this way. Right. Well, that's yeah. a natural thing to do. I think we all do that if we if we're literate, culture what I would call culturally literate, you know, kind of a minimal amount of, of literacy. Um, you know what I mean? As as opposed to, to not knowing anything about any movies or you know that that kind of thing. So that's a natural yeah. thing. I think everybody does either unconsciously or consciously. But I was struck. You know, you brought up very contemporary things. Um, I don't know if it was in that episode, but you mentioned uh, Refn, one of my favorite filmmakers, is Neon Demon and yeah, yeah. Too, young to die, too old to die young, I think. And, and and yes, that's one of his. But you you made a, a a critical thing like what he you know Refn lost me in this particular season. This sort of Henry Winkler, Fonzie jumping the shark concept from Happy Days, right? But uh, <laughs> well, that's really I was on for the entire ride. I mean, it gets very weird. I mean. To be to be fair, Too Old to Die Young is a very strange film. It may be his strangest film, more strange than Neon Demon, more inter strange in terms of you know, right? You would agree. And it's a oh very, yeah, it's yeah. a very abstract film. It's not just a crime film, and it's not just a 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's something else going on in there and it, it, it take, it's a case of difficulty, but you might be right. Maybe there's a sense in which it lost its, um, well, course or, you know, I, I, I think this is an example of the fact that we didn't, we didn't come into the show as experts on the time period. Mm-hmm. We've been right. learning as we go along. Oh yeah. Especially for me, a lot of what I say is really what I'm thinking at the moment. And absolutely. I, I, a lot of the older episodes, I can't even remember what we like what we talked about. So, well, if you ask me, I'll tell you. But you're talking about the joy of discovery, so maybe yeah. that's the secret to your show and shows like it. If there are shows, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a big podcast expert, um, but I but I, I think that that your approach is sort of like that's why I say it's literate. But it's not, you're right, expert, but without literate without being expert. So it's sort of like you're on this journey. But uh, and we're doing, the, we're doing the journey with you. And that's what's yeah. interesting. Well, that, that's good to hear. That's kind of the, that was the goal. Yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah. Too Old to Die Young. I've since changed my mind. It's definitely my favorite. And yeah. I think probably I just didn't quite get it the first time. And since then, I've come to appreciate it a lot more. It's, it's probably yeah. one of my favorites seasons of television ever and yeah uh probably up there with i know both alex and i are fans of true detective season one right yeah um i i I should interject have you guys watched glow yet speaking of 70s and 80s no no i haven't no i've heard of it but i I can't recommend enough glow i mean Glow is about all the themes that themes that you talk about on your podcast because it takes place in 84 and it's about a women's wrestling team and yeah and it's allison brie and mark maron and and um and it's a reconstruction of that era it's it's just such a good series i just recommend it um yeah we'll check that out it would be interesting to hear if you did an episode on how you would how you would um treat that well, that would be an interesting yeah. one because I never really got into wrestling as a kid either. So this would be no. This would be well, that, that's the thing about the film of the series is that you could actually know nothing about wrestling or nor be a fan and love this series because it's actually about actors who need a job. Sure. Who themselves, right. who themselves aren't even wrestlers and they sort of fall into it. So that so that the TV show is about universal themes of of being a performer and trying to work and you know the culture of the 80s so it's much more than just you know it's wrestling yeah. it's not a show i don't think the show was intended to be um for wrestling fans or you know Betty. It, yeah, sure. you know what's interesting about the 70s is it's a it's a real gold mine for television shows oh absolutely mm-hmm. in a way that the 60s and the 80s the you know the other two big pop culture decades yeah uh, re- really haven't been what's alex what's that yes um, that Showtime show that you you liked so much, the one about Times Square, like the uh, the Deuce, oh, the Deuce, the Deuce, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Well, the Deuce, yeah, the Deuce is that's, great. That's well done. It is. Yeah. I mean, Deuce is really doing different things. I mean, and it, well, Alex, how did speaking? You, when did you first see it? Because I didn't. You have the feeling watching it that is it David Simon and um, James Franco and. Um, yeah, uh, Franco for sure. It's been a while since I've seen it. Um, I actually saw it. Um, I jump around right? streaming what's, platforms. What's it? You know, a lot. I'm sorry. So Nate, I, yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm yeah. sorry. Go ahead. 
I was no, I was just gonna say I jump around streaming platforms a lot. Um, I don't necessarily have one forever and ever. I kind of like watch it and then I kind of run out of the shows or run out of the trial period. And I want to try something else. So I haven't actually seen the deuce for a while, but I do remember seeing it when it's fairly new because once I saw what the topic was, I was like, oh, that that sounds like something I definitely want to check out. Um, you know, and it was well done. And of course, you know, television is, is something that has definitely improved. Like, and that's that's already like a trope to talk about is like how ever since, you know, like the wire or the Sopranos or whatever TV has like gotten light years ahead of where it used to be from just, yeah. you know, any of your metrics. So the point is, is I thought the deuce looked pretty good and it was right on brand. And, and it was interesting too. Cause I do remember like in the news when they talked about like times square getting cleaned up, I think yeah. in the nineties, you yeah. know, so it was interesting to see times square, like at its low point. Right. Well, low point. It's interesting. I, I was living in New York City as a child uh, during that time. I mean, because my parents, it's a long story. I had a, parents had a family business and they had a second home in New York City, two, two places. Um, so so we, if I wasn't in Tampa, Florida, I was in New York City. And so, you know, that, you know, the marquees in that, like in mm -hmm. the, the marquee of the bird with the crystal plumage and the contrast. Oh, uh it's funny i've seen that um but i i don't it's funny i don't think i i recognize that uh, them together i took a photo of that because it was striking that they chose the actual movies playing i think it you was, know those are the movies i wonder i bet i noticed that when i watched it and just forgot it because i remember that was like the first i think that was the first giallo i saw so the yeah right. and of course the titles are unforgettable you know they they totally sound like something that's been run through like a translator program you know, when you, when you read the English versions of them, absolutely they've got these sort of like kind of long cumbersome things, you know, four flies on gray velvet or whatever. So, well, those are those, that's a good one too. I mean, those are, those are really interesting movies. I mean, I, it's just, what I'm saying is that you have a feeling when you see that marquee, I'm actually brought back to being a, a kid or brought, it's probably yeah. a little bit like Tarantino's memories maybe because he, like me, I'm only comparing my, myself to him in one way is that he saw, he consumed R rated culture as a child as sure why and so reading his memoir was was about how movies is really so resonant with me because i saw all those driving movies and all those things i didn't see them in california he saw them in Cal in torrance sure sure but uh it's no, very, right. similar. very similar that's funny that you mentioned earlier you talked talked about having a dream about being at a, at a drive-in because one of my early memories was going to a drive-in with my dad and us seeing wow. escape from new york yes in the drive-in <laughs> and, uh, and i just remember my dad later he was almost kind of apologetic about it because like we saw it at a drive-in at night and the whole movie is at night so like as a kid i remember like just being like it's kind of hard to tell what's going on everything's dark you know so when but it was, say, but it was doesn't escape in a New York one of those movies that's really a 70s movie. Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. I mean, I think it's from technically 82, but um oh, yeah. yeah, we 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 yeah. definitely I, I don't think we've done a, a freestanding episode on it, but we've definitely name checked it here and there. Um I think some of it is interesting when you start to see like we always joke about sort of the technology and it like Kurt Russell's got guns in there that just have like lasers and battery packs and scopes and stuff just bolted every which way on them. So it's, it's already sort of like, there's like a technophile aspect to that, even in an action movie. And then you'd see that later on. I know, used to do like film festivals. Action movies. I used to do film festivals at my house in the eighties and, and VCRs and invite friends over. <laughs> and one of my double features was a Ford Apache, the Bronx and mm. New York. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a fun time. Yeah, for, yeah. For actually, the box of Pan Greer and, and um, goodness, Paul Newman. Wow. It's, yeah, 
I think that's why um, when we do movies, we all, well, I, I always set, um, set the, the outer limit of the long seventies at 85 because yeah, really there's, um, I, I just feel like as soon as the John Hughes movies came out and temple of doom came out, mm-hmm. everything just shifted. Um, in a way, I think you've seen recently mm-hmm. in the last 20 years with the move to the big Marvel blockbusters, oh, and yeah. kind of this hollowing out of the mid budget movies. Um, all, all those smaller fun action movies mm-hmm. kind of fell away. Yeah. And, uh, those, those are the best ones. Well, though, yeah, they are. That's really true. But you know, you, you, you cap, what we're trying to articulate you are is that shift. So what is that shift? I mean, you can, you can use examples. It's sort of the shift from used cars, I guess the cynicism and the black humor of it, the two brothers and the scams and all that, and the wildness of the clothes and the polyester jackets and the used car lot. And same director, you go to Back to the Future and there's just a big change. And is it a change in, is it just basically a change to some kind of optimism or, or sort of a little more, is it just more sunshiny or is it just kind of just as simple as that? Is sort of a, or is it part of a whole, the whole Reagan's zeitgeist or the whole, you know what um, I mean? I think it's, it's, I think it's both. Got to be part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's, it's a, a shift in the zeitgeist. Yeah. Uh, I think that and in the a aesthetic. way, yeah, yeah. There's like a deliberate effort to change the aesthetic to be new and kind of uh, aimed at a different generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked a bunch of times about how all of a sudden movies became targeted at teenagers in a way yeah. they never were before. The teenagers were the were the heroes. Mm-hmm. Parents were stupid. Right. Uh, <laughs> like Ferris Bueller. Uh, all the John Hughes movies, really. And... um. But it also has to do with an attitudinal shift and this kind of culture-wide attempt to like revitalize, um, just like the the America of. It's not even really the America of old. It's really the America of like World War II, essentially. Absolutely, and and it just occurs to me now is maybe it's a return to something older. So maybe, and not, by that I don't, I don't mean World War II. Maybe it's a return to another '60s, like the '60s of Robert Kennedy's campaign. Oh um, yeah, Camelot and Jack Kennedy. Maybe that. Maybe it's like a boomer idea of that kind of positive hmm. outlook. But the '80s Reagan-esque, non-liberal, conservative version of that. I think I don't know. I'm thinking out loud. I don't know. It's sort of a weird, like funhouse mirror. So it's the same. It's the same sensibility. And that is about uplift always, you know, it's kind of uplift, you know? Yeah. It's an optimism as, a, as opposed to a pessimism. I mean, yeah. it, you, you can't help but watch long seventies movies and appreciate the kind of general pessimism and dystopia. Sure. And, you know, a, a lot of the, like the grittiness that people talk mm-hmm. about that makes seventies movies so great is, yep. is this kind of pessimism and it's dirty and crime written mm-hmm. and things are dark and, and gritty and the, it was almost a deliberate turn away from that to now everything's going to be neon and shiny and yeah, hair right. spray. Yep. And it's going to be like Leah Thompson's hair, right? You right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she has yeah. a 
gorgeous. There's a lot of that dystopian flavor too. Uh, like you were mentioning that um, it's, it's, it's even in science fiction. You know, we, we recently did an episode on uh, alien, for example, and that's just all about like this, this very, you know, grungy sci-fi, but you see it in other movies too, you know, whereas I think you'd mentioned back to the future. Uh, It's funny that by the time you get to this movie, that is like very much a mid eighties movie. Like they lean into the technology in just a positive way. Like everything from like, Marty McFly plugs his guitar into some giant amp that like blows him across the room. And that's just a cool thing that you could do if you had a guitar. And I mean, nobody was really doing it, but like you could, you know, or like the the car that can travel time, you know, and just stuff like that. Like it was, it was like the, the, the optimism from technology as opposed to just like the world is changing and things are getting worse. Um, That reminds me, did you gentlemen see the Dorian documentaries that came out a couple of years back on what, or the film? I no. wanted to. I never did. Yeah, I saw the documentary um, because it does relate, of course, to Back to the Future. It makes me think of because of his his entrepreneurial, you know. Um, There's a new thing on that too. Have Have you seen that? I I don't know if it's a Hulu thing or a Prime. Um, yeah. I think it's got maybe I want to say Jason Sudeikis and some people in it. It's called like uh-huh. Driven, and I think it's a it's a it's another DeLorean or DeLorean adjacent yeah. thing. I'm thinking about the movie Cutter's Way. I don't know why. I mean, it could be that like a movie like Cutter's Way. Have you guys seen Cutter's Way? No, no. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so we will. You should. I'd love to see you guys do a show on Cutter's Way. That's like 1981, and that's a movie that's both 70s and 80s. And there are things like that that sort of feel like a hybrid, you know. Um, yeah, let me put that on the list. Okay. It's Jeff Bridges, and it's about a John Hurd, a Vietnam vet. Hmm. Oh. And about cons- political conspiracies and assassinations, and it's really good. Really, uh, it sounds perfect. Yeah, it's, yeah. Well, it's interesting. You bring up the bringing the Vietnam vets into the movies, like after yeah. the war was like very much over. We've we've talked about that on the podcast yeah. before, and and also there's an interesting chapter. Um, there's a book on the Vietnam War that I like a lot. That's called I think it's called um, When the Domino Fell or Where the Domino Fell. It's one of yep. those two. Uh, anyhow, it's got a great chapter about like the portrayal of the Vietnam vet like into the eighties. And that's oh, yeah. what's kind of, you know, you get everything from like First Blood, but you also get, I think there's a movie called Coming Home. I'm doing this from memory, so I'm probably getting well, this. Coming Home is Hal Ashby's masterpiece from 1977. John Voight. Exactly. So like once the once the movies were no longer about the war because it, it had become yeah. history at that point, but like the people who were in it and like mm-hmm. how, how they got portrayed. And I think that's just like an interesting like postscript to just talking about Vietnam. Absolutely. And I think that that's, um, that's certainly, but you, you folks have covered, but I want to go back to this Rajneesh again, because I think it's interesting. So if I didn't know who they were, like, I, you know, my parents were in the natural products industry and my dad invented the United States very first all natural organic cosmetic. What was that? It was called Aubrey organics. Um, Oh, right. And it was the first of its kind before Rachel Perry, before body shop, before, hmm. I mean, those guys stole from my dad basically. So, yeah. Um, and then Whole yeah. Foods came in and then it was uh, the rest was history literally. But, but what I'm saying is that it's interesting because I was in that industry. I met so many people who knew people who went to Oregon. So, so many people, in fact, I even dated a woman briefly who had all of OSHA's books. That was like her love. Mm. You know, and we would not to, get too intimate here explicit that, you know, she, she was always turning me on to 
Osho says this and says that. Sure. Uh, yeah. But she herself never went to Oregon, but it made me think it's the connections between things. And in a way, the way you covered that phenomenon was the way it should be covered, because I think you should cover things again, as I said before, subtly, you know, you don't want to beat the audience over the head. And you also don't, you want the audience to reach their own conclusions. And you were sort of grappling with like, well, what is a cult and what is a new religious movement and what, you know, what, um, so it's interesting to, to hear about these people and know about a little bit from the inside, knowing people that did go to extremes or did do in their spiritual um, paths, you know, they took on, they made decisions, you know, like that. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, we've it, covered a bunch of those too. So I think we always just try to kind of let things speak for themselves. Plus it's, it's like, we're not out here to moralize or whatever. I mean, right. people can come to their own conclusions by the time we've also, I think read up on and, and kind of prepped for an episode. Like you, you kind of feel like you start to get to know, some of these people and you know i don't know it's hard to we're not going to demonize something when there's just an interesting story in there just to get yeah, out unless and, you have and to work through well but unless it's i mean there's a lot of demonization that's that's not maybe required or called for in some of these groups i mean have you have you folks sure sure of course if it's something well, that's you, terrible. To, i know you did the love family which is but did you give you guys tackle children of god at all in any of you? No, it's no, and I know that's a different. Yeah, that's on a different level, and of course, oh, yeah. there's. We're, I'm not gonna. Yeah, we're we. I wouldn't give any sort of like, you know, moral equivalency between some of these. We've just happened oh, to yeah. pick some that that did have more of a mixed record and weren't all one one sure. way. But yeah, but some of them are truly terrible. Um, the Children of God is is one of the egregious ones. You know, almost like yeah. Center, like a, you know, because of the ped pedophilia, of course, and because, and also many celebrities grew up in it, like the Phoenix family were, yeah, yeah, were involved in that, and and, and, um, and other celebrities. I'm forgetting, blanking them. Actress oh, uh, Rose McGowan was Rose there. McGowan. Yeah, and yeah. I think you got all these poor kids had to grow up in that. But online, there was an FBI site website. I highly recommend that has all they collected all the cartoons and and illustrations of their guru berg i think his name was yeah yeah you've seen yeah. that all these like jesus tracks and all these and they're weird kind of a really uh fucked up <laughs> form yeah. of christianity you know just basically his 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 own just awfulness and all these cartoons and it's really you know i'm not offended by many things but i have to say that fbi website kind of kind of was disturbing <laughs> disturbing oh yeah yeah that. yeah and i it think that would be a perfect episode though, because it, it is such a that is a seventies phenomenon that that church and the group, you know, if anything is, you know. Yeah, the um, we're we're about to tackle Jonestown, wow, the People's Temple, and in in some ways, I think we try to steer away from the really dark stuff and the mm -hmm. really, you know, like we're gonna. I, I feel like we need to do Jonestown because it just has to be done, but at the same time. I'm not entirely sure what we what unique insight we can bring to Jonestown. It's it's sure. been gone over. Children of God is 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 kind of the same. Very much in so. that I, I almost feel like we would just spend the whole episode just talking about how terrible it is. And I don't right. I don't know if I could I don't know what that says about the long 70s. And well. I have some theories. I mean, we can just trade theories if now. If you want. Sure. I sure. do have ideas about why it got that bad at times and what that means. I mean, I think 
So have you folks read as part of your research, Deborah Layton's book, like Seductive Embrace or? No, no, we haven't yeah, gotten that, That's that. kind of a must. I mean, you, you guys always have reading lists on your episodes. And so that would be, I would try to find a copy of Seductive Embrace. And because Deborah Layton was a, um, was a, uh, one of the people that got out of the escape, the suicide. And, um, uh, oh, in Jonestown. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, I, I may have read some of that. I forget. I, we haven't done an episode on it per se, but I know that right. we've both, or at least just speaking for myself, like I've done a lot of reading on it just because, I mean, it's just, it's fascinating. You know, it's a fascinating story anyway. Well, Deborah Layton is a really brilliant, I mean, really, she's just a good writer. I mean, I think she's also, is she a therapist too? I think. I don't know. I don't know. She might counsel people that have been in damaging groups or toxic okay. groups. And, and, and I think that that's all that's very, Important, but my theory is this. So I think, you know, it's actually really simple. So the 70s is predicated on all 70s things. And I've been doing series on movies and on my show about 70s cinema. It's predicated on one proposition that if you feel it and you undergo it, you must share it with the world and express it, whatever it is. Yeah, that's a good point. And mm -hmm. it's kind of like getting in touch with your feelings. Now, if you think about it, that could be really, really valuable. But it can also lead you into hell and others into hell because a lot of stuff inside of us we probably should not share or express. Right. <laughs> never yeah. mind, never mind making what occurs to us in the spur of the moment, making it into a religion or into a political movement. But in the 70s, people did that. They took everything, all the stuff in them, and they in a way did not edit it or, or they didn't self-censor and they just expressed it and made, and that's, so I see all these problems emerging from that proposition. And I, I see these religious movements like this Rajneesh thing. I see all over that, that, that kind of right is thing of like, you know, we must do this and we must have multiple spouses. Why? Because I want to, or because, you know, yeah, this kind of, kind of insanity, if you want to call it that. Yeah, that's true. Um, that is definitely a characteristic of kind of the boomer generation mm -hmm. and um, not that it's inherent in them, but that's just kind of how they were uh, created by pop culture. Mm -hmm. And then um, I think that's why the cynicism of Gen X is so pronounced because it's a response to their parents we are we're we're right this reminds me because earlier in this episode that we're doing now you mentioned that um people forget people like to trash 70s aesthetics well they like to forget us we're like we're the invisible middle children right is gen x yeah sure yeah, yeah. and so maybe That's part of our yeah maybe part of our rebellion is being overlooked maybe or, or kind of um you know, they use phrases like latch key and all this this kind of stuff i don't, I don't know if that's all maybe it's, it does apply very much yeah, I guess it does. I don't know if you how, what you folks feel feel about your growing up, but um, do you think in a way we're kind of in a rebellion? Well, first of all, we're not really in rebellion. Kind of, kind of Gen X is about not rebelling in a way, right? Right, right. I mean, right. We're, we're not really conformist nor rebel. We're like sort of none of the above. We're kind of like, well, we don't want to conform, and we don't want to rebel. We just what kind of want to survive and get it, get from day to day. <laughs> Much more, I think, yeah. we're more practical. Than, than boomers, I think, if I risk risk us over generalization. Yeah, which is, uh, I mean, in some ways, kind of sad because we we don't necessarily get to partake in that fun optimism. 
and uh, mm-hmm. ex- extravagance of behavior. Yeah. But um, it, it also does, uh, it does offer some insight into why a lot of Gen X people don't get heavily involved in anything. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're not necessarily joiners in the way that baby boomers were and the following generations tend to be um, because I think they, they kind of saw the extravagance of the seventies. Well, we we saw, yeah, we saw the, for lack of a better word, excess of the seventies. Sure. Right. Excess of emotional, I would call it emotional exhibitionism. Yeah. And, but you know, I'm always mindful, you know, because I have friends that are actors and studied acting or professional actors. And, and of course I know about repression being a negative thing. So I'm always mindful that it is good to be in touch with your feelings. It's valuable, you know, and I think, you know, it's not that bad. Yeah. Maybe it's a question of balance. I don't know. I don't know what you, I don't know. Although, although Gen X was kind of given its own excesses, they, they just take a different form. You have the older Gen Xers who, Mm-hmm. Got to experience like the late the excess of the late eighties. Oh yeah, and um, but then when you get into the 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 early nineties, the excess takes a, a a much more internal kind of aspect, and you see, you know, in pop culture, the glamorization of heroin and oh yeah, like uh, the grunge scene, the yeah, sure the. The, the idea of just basically self-destruction as creative endeavor. Mm. Sure. Also the, the, the coolness of apathy. Um, right. You know, yeah. there's, I was, there's a, there's a line from, there's a book by Chuck Klosterman called the nineties. And there's a line. I was just, you just read my mind. I was going to bring He's got all kinds of great insights, but there's a line in there. I paraphrase and, and I'm paraphrasing it because I don't have the book in front of me, but he talks about how basically in the nineties, it was, it, that that to do performative outrage was a bad look that that just wasn't Absolutely. part of the, the you know what people did so there was sort of that like gen x shrug that that was so maybe maybe it just occurs to me now maybe what chuck Klosterman is describing the 90s is the 90s was the brief 10 years where we alex matt me had some <laughs> say over things and so one so what i mean is that because we were young adults then and we had some mm-hmm. a little more power and so maybe our idea is, hey, enough of the protesting, enough of the, and also as he says, you don't have to care. It's like it's not mandatory. Sure. Yeah. There's a real sad aspect to his book, the '90s, because sad that he, he's mourning an era in which you weren't forced, in which things weren't compulsory. Right. Sure. Yeah. And we live in yeah. the age now, as you know, where everything is compulsory and mandatory. Like you have to do X, Y, and Z, and it's just so different. Right. That's yeah. a good point. Although, um, interestingly, uh, Alex is the one who brought this to my attention. There, the the '90s were actually the like the the birth of the kind of modern anarchist movement. Sure. And uh, he has this. I think I'm not going to speak for you, Alex, but he has this no, go publisher ahead. he likes called Crime Think. That oh, sure. <laughs> they they started, I believe, in the '90s, maybe the '80s, but uh, definitely big in the '90s, where they would publish books and pamphlets about how to steal. Oh yeah. How to uh, squ- uh, squat and yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> there's yeah. It's interesting where they come out of. Yeah, you're right because it's tricky because some of it is very like kind of culture jamming um 
sort of cut and paste and just like, you know, it's, it, it's kind of a challenge to, to follow it because it's, it reminds me a lot of, I don't know if you guys remember this or if you ever followed it, but there used to be a, a magazine that you could find. Uh, and I think they were even like, like out at the, the checkout lanes that was called ad busters. Oh, right. Yeah. Well, ad busters. I mean, the, the person that published ad busters, um, was one of the um, creators of uh, Occupy Wall Street. Okay, that so makes sense. Same people, it makes of course, sense. right? Yeah. So, but th there's a very similar like um, philosophy and aesthetic right. between something like AdBusters and like the Crime Think catalog. There, but you're right. It's an interesting. Um, yeah, it is interesting how there was sort of that that, uh, like Matt said, the anarchism that came out of that. Plus, two, you have like the just speaking for one of the authors that I'm familiar with who has a book in that where you had this stuff that grew out of like punk rock culture. So oh, you yeah. had this idea of like veganism sure. um, really kind of flowering and like, like the melding of like veganism and, and hardcore punk rock and that sort of thing. And that was something that definitely got big. Like there were bands I think that were probably came out of the nineties that, that like brought those things together. I mean, uh, I, 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 I think I'm associated so, with that. Yeah. Well those, so I see hardcore punk and, um, I mean, they came out of way back than that, but like a particular right, well, strain I, I of it. To, uh, right, but in addition to that, I see them as in part 70s. So I, it's, I see them- as Sure, like, yeah, where it started, yeah. But yeah, by the time you yeah. had these like sort of vegan strains of it that was like, you know, second generation hardcore, you know, some of these bands, they were they were really bands, I think of the 90s as much as anything. You know, they were they were like a, another generation that, that uh, you know, was doing its own thing then. So, but that's just, again- I think part of that like kind of anarchist thing. It was a weird time though, because you're also talking about a decade that they like, didn't really have wars as we would understand. Oh, like, it was, I mean, it was pre nine 11 and post Vietnam. Oh, God. I mean, the nineties was, that. you know, well, uh, Klosterman talks about one that was the last great good decade of affluence and, well, <laughs> sure. affluence and prosperity and peace. And we've got, I mean, think about Bill Clinton hanging out with um, Yasser Arafat and uh, yeah. prime minister mm -hmm. of, of Israel and shaking hands and laughing. That's not what we're seeing now within the Mideast. No, not yeah. at all. And so I couldn't get, so we, you know, forgive me if I maybe kind of have a little bit of nostalgia for parts of the nineties, but you know, you know, this kind of thing you're talking about the, um, so that kind of radical politics that, um, anti WTO. Mm -hmm, exactly. Battle yeah. The Seattle, battle in Seattle. Well, yeah. here's what's interesting about that. I think it's a, it's a contradiction because on the one hand, it does have these 60s, 70s roots and that it's far left. It's left wing. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's a lot like the Weather Underground and the RCP and Baba Vakian, or except it's it's anti-Marxist. It's not like Baba Vakian. It's not communist. It's anarchist, but still far left. But what's, what's I think, uniquely possibly 90s about it is that it's not about, it doesn't have the compulsory quality. What I mean is that their solution is to sort of say, screw everyone and everything. Let's start over. Yeah. But that mm -hmm. impulse, that impulse is very much, it, there's a kind of optional aspect to that. It, that's very different from, so it's different from like, say, vote for this congressperson because they'll defend choice or abortion rights. Sure. Because it seems to me, that's that's more like that presupposes. So I guess the real question is, are you going to be in the system at all to enact change within the system? Or are you going to be indifferent? No systems. Let's start a little commune or a little 
And that's maybe the latter is maybe more of a nineties thing. I don't know. Yeah. It's, hard to, it's hard to know, but I think a lot of it, I mean, my politics are not like any of these politics. I have to say full disclosure. I'm not a, not a far leftist. And, and I'm also, I'm also not a conservative. So I kind of, kind of country, no co man with no country. But what I mean sure. is that I think it's um, interesting to observe these movements and these. Um, Boy, now that, um, now that we talk about it, I'm thinking, when people say where did Gen X go, I'm I'm thinking that um, Occupy Wall Street was the end of it. Uh, after Occupy Wall Street basically fizzled out, and things went completely the other direction, mm -hmm. uh, I think I think Gen X just gave up. I, I think that like you said, um, the the let's check out of the system that disappeared because i don't think um in general millennials are like that M millennials oh, no oh, they're the opposite right Millenn uh, millennials are all about involvement civic duty responsibility yeah. change the world make the world a better mm -hmm. place they i mean i to put it i mean I to put it this simply but they are basically progressives of one sort or another and, and almost in lockstep Sure, sure. And I don't know why they're that way. I mean, I, I'm not like that, but I, of course, you know, I was like that when I was very young. So I've had my own journey, but what I mean is, um, could they be like that because their parents are, I mean, they're the degree to which, you know, they rebel against their parents, you know, okay, boomer, but maybe they're rebelling against hmm. their parents because their parents weren't left wing enough. Got to be more left. -wing yeah. I could see that for life. sure. You got to sign on for every, new legislation about trans rights and you have to do this and you have to do that and you have to change Greta, Greta, uh, uh, you know, you've got to actually be against, uh, you've got to be against your own mom. Who's a great opera singer because why? Because opera might be environmentally harmful or wasteful. And I don't know. It's just, it's, it's just all these, um, these things. I didn't mean to get so much to politics, but I guess it comes out. Uh, these, well, it, it, uh, it is. I, I think you've, you've kind of nailed the difference is the the idea of checking out and not being involved with any kind of system is completely gone yeah and i think that uh this all started off talking about children of god oh and, god um, cults which in you know in our time period it was a time when uh well we took like shulman himself talks about how there was a turning away, like a dropping out of society after 68, 69, where those people essentially realized or decided that uh, politics would get them nowhere. Uh, they just were going to leave society and start their own thing. Sure. And that it's almost like Gen X got that aspect of the yeah. boomer culture and the millennials got the earlier more romantic aspect of, you know, 67 to 68 and Gen X got mm -hmm. 69 to 74 with all the, right. the bombings and stuff. Yeah. We got the days of rage and the, right. and Patty right. Hearst and uh, Bernadine Dorn and the RR red army faction and Biden Meinhof. We got all that, you know, that, that, that insanity and maybe it, yeah, maybe, maybe we didn't like that or didn't want to, yeah. yeah that, but it's funny. Bruce Shulman told me a personal story of him when he was a teen trying to canvass for a Democratic um, politician going from door to door. 
And this would have been in the late 70s, I think. Hmm. And he remembers, and this is in a largely democratic part of New York, I think, where he grew up. And he remembers a change in his neighbors. He remembers that when he was like really young, like early 70s or maybe, I guess, right? Everybody kind of was just basically matter of fact about politics. You know, you vote for the Democrat and you, right? You vote for Hubert Humphrey or whoever and mm-hmm. and you yeah. kind of get on with your life. You know, you don't make a federal case out of it. But he says he noticed when he was trying to canvass for this, he wanted this person to win, that his neighbors were like, politics is bullshit. Um, he's just a crook or I don't really care about, about that. So a different... And that was more in 78. So, so there was a change in that, right? That kind of, um, yeah. And maybe that kind of anti politics, anti government is one of the uh, dark things that we're dealing with the effects of now. I don't know. So that, you know, well, uh, the idea if, if you carry that to its logical conclusion, you should make sure that nobody with any political experience, that only those people are allowed to, you know, it's like kind of like, yeah. like yeah, I'm I'm not going to speak for Alex, but I'm of the opinion mm-hmm. just after doing this for 4 years wow. that um I I at some point I tried to talk Alex into starting a second podcast called uh, Null Exit, which was about how the 90s were the last decade. That's right. Not not just the be- the last good de- decade, but they the, were just last, the last decade. Just the last one that had its own character before Absolutely. everything became recycled and like a simulation of something that had already happened Mm -hmm. and um so i mean i i can understand what you what you said when you said you don't uh like you're not really anything in terms of politics uh i'm similar in a way but hold, hold that thought i mean no so i i do have my own politics but what i mean to say is that it's not the most important thing in life to me it's a minor okay there's a lot of other things that are important to me. I mean, it's just, I'm not, so I guess I'm, it's another way to say I'm not an extremist. Or I'm not yeah. Okay. Going sure. um, but I mean, uh, everything seems like something that already happened. It seems yeah. like a product. Uh, right. People are reliving things that already happened. Right. And so in some ways it's hard to get attached, I think for people. Um in others, obviously, it's not hard, but um, yeah, it's it's a weird grinding down of of like novelty to where thing, things are new, but they're not actually new; they're rebooted. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, they're copies of copies, right? Is that kind of what you're saying? You're saying that that creates a different that creates a different aesthetic, right? If you're doing a copy of something, you're doing a yeah. yeah there's a there's a quote that I've said before on the podcast, so Mitch, you've probably already heard me say this, but it's actually a quote again by Chuck Klosterman from his his book in the '90s, yep. where he talks about some of the the, the the changing in pop culture. He uses it in a pop culture context, but he says uh, content could be created from content. Oh uh, yeah, and yeah. so that's something I think about a lot when you're kind of looking at like different decades and sort of like what do you have left to work with? Like, for example, you know, through Matt um, and, and whatever, I've gotten into like a lot of genres of film just because the seventies is so rich with it. And, and it has its own distinctive stamp, you know, so there's everything from like crime movies, there's horror, stuff like that. 
and and some of those sort of set the tone for things, you know, like exploitation movies or this, yeah. you know, subgenre or something like that. And then I'll be, you know, checking out some streaming stuff and just kind of flipping through the little thumbnails. And I'll see these things that are clearly like a, a 21st century take on something that mm -hmm. came out of the 70s, like, you know, some kind of a horror film or a crime film or something like sure. that. And it's, and it's just, it seems too self-aware to be good. It's like, it's, you just know that B movie from 2015 is yeah. not going to have like the honesty for lack of a better term of the B movie from 1975. Yeah, you're right. I mean, imagine if somebody tried to remake massacre at central high now or remake yeah. um, that or, um, I don't know. Well, they wouldn't do it. First of all, they probably. I even mean, made a movie right. like that. Now I'd probably be banned in pre-production. They would yeah. have reaction because someone would be offended by the, the prospect of it. They would be probably worried about kids copying it and shooting, shooting up their fellow classmates. And, uh, well, you know what's funny on that, like a uh, remake topic. of Gummo. Yeah, Is, speaking of right or things that get made that never were made. There was um. There was that whole thing, I forget when, when these actually came out, but you guys both know that there was that time where Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino did that double feature, two different movies, Planet Terror and uh, yeah, Death Trent. Proof. Yeah. And, and they released them in cinemas at the same time. And then they they like had all these like fake trailers and ads and stuff like yeah, that to go with great. it. The whole package was this grind core or grind, excuse me, grindhouse yeah. uh, thing that they were calling the whole entire package. So what's funny is as time has gone on, you know, I've been on YouTube and I've watched all the fake trailers and I'm like, how fun, you know, these are cool. They look period, you know, like they've got like the shitty film stock and all that stuff. And mm -hmm. they've got like guest directors and everything. But what's weird is since then they have turned all but one of those fake trailers into something. So they've turned like the Thanksgiving <laughs> horror movie into a real movie and like hobo with a shotgun and machete. I think that was one of them. And there's, and oh. there's something else too, but the one they haven't done is the one that's like the Nazi werewolf. She whatever's of the that's SS, cool. you know, like they can't, you can't do that kind of Nazi exploitation movie with Fu Manchu in it no. uh, today. That's the one that's going to have to stay the fake yeah. trailer with no movie. Well, I'm surprised. Yeah, that, well, that doesn't surprise me. But I have a first edition in front of me of the book Serial by Cyrus McFadden, A You in the Life of Marin County, illustrated from 1977. Wow. And wow. I'm going to read you the blurb on the back. All right. And ask you, gentlemen, how many of these things you have come in contact with in your 70s research? Okay. And this is a, this book costs, by the way, it's $4.95. So it's prices. <laughs> these illustrations are amazing. There's like, there's no illustration of anybody doing coke, although there should be. But there's um. <laughs> uh, by the way, I have some I have some pro cocaine books in my possession, like first edition of, the joys of cocaine and. Oh, those are great. That's a great show. You've seen mm -hmm. those. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, <laughs> and here, here I'm going to read and see see if you'll recognize anything that comes to mind. Here in 52 Zini episodes is a hilarious and deadly account of the liberated life a la Marin County. California, featuring that average couple, Kate and Harvey Holroyd, who belong to the Sierra Club, attend Mozart festivals, ride Moto Bikani 10 speeds, cherish their Cuisinart until the sushi hits the fan, and they plunge into a world of creative divorce, macrame, lentil <laughs> leaves, personal growth, enzymes, <laughs> cool wit fantasies, natural fibers, 
and crucial, staying, staying mellow at all costs. Meet the Holeroids and all the rest of the gang. Martha, who can't get behind ironing boards. Her fifth husband, Bill. They worked out a contract, including garbage drills, before they even had a permanent con commitment. And Bill's ex, Vivian, and Carol, Katie's flaky friend from her consciousness-raising group, who dresses like a pointer sister until she finally comes out as gay. And Rita, who's into funk. She had like mutated over the years through Gurdjieff, Silva mind control, actualism, mind science, human life, styling, <laughs> organami, and Marlene, who's into the body's need for zinc. And Harvey's <laughs> secretary, Ms. Murphy, who isn't into making coffee for the head honcho. And Phil, just an ordinary sadomasochistic freak. And Paco, the dog hairdresser, with the Guatemala accent, and of course, the Holaroids, Manx Cat Vonnegut Jr. It's a cat. <laughs> Meet them and then follow them as they, and this is all capitalized, the following words. Okay. Break out, explore their options, get clear, get space. <laughs> as the real Marin of gourmet goodies and wine tripping fades, and Kate decides to take a lover. The question was whose? And Harvey, <laughs> and Harvey comes onto the chick at the checkout counter, and Ms. Murphy reveals a sudden consuming interest in Harvey, and Carol gets messed up in a few bad bummer situations. And Kate enters a commune after answering an ad for a mature, mellow female vegetarian and punches out at the gnats in the yogurt. <laughs> and Harvey moves back after a stint in a one-bedroom combo, condo, and Kate and Harvey settle down to work through their conflicts and stop laying bad trips on each other. Here they are, splitting up, marrying on mountaintops, committing themselves in LTR, living together relationships, renewing and revising their contracts, <laughs> Restructuring, evolving in the universe in a riotous, absolutely wonderful saga of the California dynamics, dynamic at its most dynamic. <laughs> yeah. Any of those things ring a bell that you've encountered? Those kinds of. Uh, I mean, that's that basically illustrates the slow transition from hippies to yuppies. Yep. Huh. Yep. Exactly. The the new the new age movement mm -hmm. um it's funny yeah, how many of those things are back also, yeah well, it's funny that they the, the cuisinart made it in there you know along with everything else <laughs> i never had a cuisinart i never my parents never had one i don't really know did you folks experience i, that I remember my my dad yeah. having one and and i remember there was something about it that just sounded so like highfalutin like it, it was like the name, the brand, like to this day, like you can just go and buy them, whatever, like, oh, you know, you, you can get like the little one that doesn't cost very much at Target or whatever. But I remember right. to this day, it still sounds like the Rolls Royce of kitchen appliances just because of the name. Because I just got used to that being like, it, it felt like a weird like, kind of 80s status symbol thing that came out of, you know, it was a little bit like Le Car. Remember that? Le Car. Yeah. Oh yeah, the little, the little, um, what was that? A little Peugeot or Renault or something like that. <laughs> I love that last. I don't know. It's kind of the or the or the. Well, it's it's funny. Uh, did you did you folks experience fondue? Did your parents have fondue? 
Uh, not as I, a child. No, I I have some vague memories of it. It definitely was a thing. Like I remember when fondue restaurants kind of got rebooted. Um, yeah. However long ago, and and there was a lot of talk about like that it was like a thing from the seventies or like you'd you'd go to garage sales and somebody's mm -hmm. fondue set would be there that they were getting rid of, you know. Yeah, fondue is great though. I mean, oh people, yeah, people should get back into that. I don't know. I'm a kind of afraid of it. What is it? Uh... Well, I'm afraid of you know hygiene. I just don't like to eat out of. I don't know. I don't like to eat out of. I don't know. I just I don't want to. Do you know what I mean? I just uh, yeah yeah. I like get the dessert outfit. one. Just get like the one that you dunk in chocolate. You know, you don't have to worry about oh. like, all meat strips or anything like that. Oh yeah. Or just like right. cheese or something like that. Yeah. yeah. But that 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 definitely illustrates the whole um, emphasis on self exploration and self actualization. Oh, totally. Uh, what is it? A human potential. Human yeah, human potential. potential. Right, right. Well, one of the very one of the very chap first paragraphs of one of the chapters, because the book is written in the language of these people. So it's, but it's written from an omniscient narrator, right? Who's sort of mm. not believing in it. So Sarah McFadden, it's, it's sort of satire, but she uses the language and kind of, a, so for example, and, and it kind of, it makes it, makes the novel strange. Cause you, if you're not really into that, into that language, you don't really know what the hell they're talking about. So I guess sure. <laughs> here's yeah. an example. One chapter is called reordering the priorities. Don't know what that means. And then the, the first paragraph is, their first priority, Kate and Harvey agreed, was to work through their conflicts, stop laying bad trips on each other, and restructure their marriage. It yeah. was a heavy number for yeah. sure, but they could do it. For yeah. one thing, they really wanted to get it together. And yeah. for another... Yeah, yeah. those, those catchphrases no, in like, there. It, it totally sounds like dead. they got called the HR. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And when it you goes hear, like, head to get trip. Together, does that mean not be a part, I guess? I guess we get the shit together. And it's, so, it's so business-like. That, that's yeah. one thing about that's New Age and, and the yuppies is, is the business attitude and way of doing things invades everything. Huh. Even relationships. You get this weird managerial, um, like, managerial textbook yeah. way of talking about relationships. In con it's contractual. Yeah, well, you had the I think the mainstreaming <sighs> of like therapeutic stuff a lot more. Oh yeah, and 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 and, and it's like DIY therapy sort of thing. So, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. that was just I became part of the lexicon. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting too when you talk about people like pulling away. Uh, we had I'm just kind of doing a little bit of a callback yeah. to some things we were talking about before. Um, you know, it's it's funny how that's part of. I think that that idea of, of like withdrawing in order to to improve yourself mm -hmm. that was the driving force behind a lot of these things that were these intentional communities. Absolutely. Some of the ones we picked on, you know, we talked about like the farm in Tennessee, sure. um, who were big with soybeans, and just some of these other ones where it's it's a little more interesting, I think, to explore them because some of them you do have like the villains out there, you know, like the really terrible cults or yeah, like the, you know, like the children of God, children of God, you know, the Manson family or whatever. But it's interesting to see these ones where you you can you can sort of just see them and and sort of just like go through like their struggle and their transition and and sort of what made them appealing or what drew people to them. Some of it is so you know predatory that it's really hard. To, to figure it out but like you'd mentioned earlier mitch uh talking about someone was like talking about osho to you yeah well and, no, my, my woman i was dating was really a osho it, 
Exactly. And, and I remember like reading accounts of people who joined the Rajneeshis and they were just talking about how like some of these teachings really hit them hard and they really spoke to them and that sort of thing. And it's easy to forget that some of this stuff, I mean, again, some of these were more benevolent than others, but they really did speak to people. Um, and that's, it's interesting to see like just how someone kind of went through like an internal journey when they found this and decided to like give up some part of their old Absolutely. life and step well, you know, in. You know what that reminds me? One of your very first episodes is an episode that I learned and I did not know anything really about it. So I knew who Steve Allen was. Oh, I'm right. The love family. Well, because I'm yeah, a his son. Artist, and he was a, he did play, wrote jazz songs. Wrote them, as right, said, right, right. Amount of songs and was, a, was one of the Tonight Show hosts in the 50s. And mm -hmm. but I did not know about his story with his son at all. I didn't know about any of that. And so it was really something to hear that episode. You guys uncover his book and Steve Allen and that whole thing. And what, and that was you know, another one of those mixed bag cults, if you will. Like there were some questionable and, and things about it that aren't good, but it wasn't like completely unredeemable, you know, and, and, and that's, yeah. you know, again, that's, and some of those you don't hear about because you do hear about the worst things you do hear about Jonestown, you know, and stuff yeah. like that, but you don't hear about these ones where there wasn't like, you know, a whole bunch of murders that went along with it or something horrible. What do yeah. you folks, I mean, I learned, I'm just saying, I learned a lot from that episode and you, you guys did too, evidently. It's, it's odd that um, mm -hmm. you feel for Steve Allen in a way, but you could sort of understand maybe his son was just like all, a lot of us just go like wanted to find of his own faith, his own spirituality. Sure. It just oh, yeah. this form of this particular sect or this particular group, I guess. And, and that's probably hard too. when you have a famous parent, because I think a lot of people feel like they're living in their parents' shadow and that sort of mm -hmm. thing. It opens doors for them, but then, you know, it closes the only door you've got. Well, it might close the door of something totally different, right? So maybe, exactly. maybe the son was trying to find his own thing or his own, his own um, stuff as they would say, would have said then, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's also really hard to put yourself in a historical person's shoes. True. Because sometimes we're probably all doing things that people in the future might think are odd or mm -hmm. like poorly thought out, but we're just doing them because them. It's a thing people are doing. Yeah, and or it's, it, the best it's not even. Yeah, but so when we look at the stuff fifty years later, we we tend to like over intellectualize and think, why did mm -hmm. they do that? Exactly. Maybe they were doing it just because it was fun or. Sure. It was better than the other options they had at the moment. And and it hadn't been done. There was nothing to reflect on. You know, it was something new. I mean, it, it could only be taken at face value because it hadn't been around long enough or well-known enough to have like a body of reflections that you could, you know, hear about secondhand and say, well, okay, you know, you, 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 you could only experience it one, one way or one direction. Yeah. Well, I guess the phrase I always comes, comes to my mind is the what were they thinking? It's the distance right. travel. It's like, well, these are these alien people that did these strange rituals and ceremonies long ago in 1976. And so I guess um, a lot of it is the, the distance traveled. So somebody really young who wasn't around then, but somebody who did do it, but it, it's almost like a different person. So they say, what were they thinking when they... You know, when they had that hairdo or wore that jacket or when they... You know, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Or yeah. when they had something pursued polyamory in a way that that was irresponsible or was kind of um not you know there's ways to do it but they did it in, in the wrong way or in a way that makes you go god what was i thinking or you know that right that's yeah. kind of um i'm wondering how much of that impulse is just a natural effect of being modern people 
by which I mean, you know, in the modern world, people make choices. And in the traditional world, and I'm using that very broadly, so modern could be like, you know, it's not just 20th century. It starts, I think, in 18th century, you know, a little bit. But then you think about traditional society, like really with a capital T, you know, like uh, older communities. And so in traditional societies, it's not about your choice or, you know, sure. it's about yeah. basically you kind of do what your folks did and what they right, what right. Folks did. And it's kind of laid out for you. So I'm wondering if, you know, being cho choice oriented society lends itself to these kinds of embarrassments or change of heart or, you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. Sure. You might make some a of that is yeah yeah, yeah I, I agree with you Mitch and just my my comment on that is some of that is very much generational um it's it's you can't tell the story of like baby boomers during the long seventies without talking about how these things that were both new and available shaped that you had people who were going to college for the first time Absolutely. you had that post war prosperity you had just a lot of like cultural changes that were coming about so all these things were happening at the same time so it was just like this this perfect sort of petri dish for people doing something different from their folks because they could they could study something different they could work in something different they were aware of something it could be everything from a new field to work into a new religious movement or a commune to join i mean it was just like there was a, a perfect storm i think of things that enabled people to make choices and to to break the mold at least as far as like you know their parents and grandparents options Absolutely. So that's definitely a choice, as you said, choosing, breaking the mold, going to school for the first time. I know that's something Bruce Shulman really emphasized to me in my episode is that he said this was the first era. Well, it's the first era that women entered the workforce on mass. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. And it was the first era where education became this kind of universal thing, you know, like going to, you know, secondary education, you know, like college. Um, yeah. And that, and he also told a story about his, again, another personal story of his life of seeing the change on co college campuses of activism. Right. So in 1966, like everybody was against the Vietnam War, right? Right. But the way they were events against the war, as he pointed out to me, is we're just against the war. There was no mention of the identity of the protester, not even the identity of like we're college kids against the war not even it was always this war is wrong get out of vietnam that was what all the signs were yeah in the long 70s like you know the degree to which it's at the end of the tail end right because they were so in 72 you see a change on college campuses you see chicanos against the war women against the war you see these separate um, mm -hmm. separate booths yeah. Americans, you know so vietnamese americans against the war you start to see things defined in terms of the separate, the separate little subcultures, and that becomes really important. And of course, I guess Bushum was saying that was a story of the seventies where people got into their own tribes or into their own. Sure. And interesting. Well, the war was anti-war uh, uh, activism or whatever was just such an, an aggregator and the glue between people. Uh, I remember reading a, a memoir of a of a midwife, um, and she was basically saying after the war ended, like she and her uh, friends or whoever her community were kind of at loose ends because opposing the war was was like the engine that that drove them and held them together and everything and they needed to sort of find this like post Vietnam War identity and she got into like being a midwife or, or gathering herbs or something like that so mm -hmm. you know that's I think that speaks to part of it too 
Well, that I met many people like her when I was in my my parents' business, obviously, because they would use, you know, midwives would use my our products, of course, because it was natural. And, and a lot of the people that were definitely women identified as midwives would were into natural cosmetics and natural, mm -hmm. not just natural foods, but natural soap and you know, and all that. I mean, it reminds me of some of that. Some of that. Are you are you folks interested a lot in doing an episode on Werner Erhart and Est and Landmark, or have you thought about? Oh, yeah, of, yeah, we've definitely we've definitely thought about it. Um, I think that that would that would be a big one to tackle because that yeah. is really the tip of an iceberg that still kind of persists. Sure. Just, uh, uh, I mean, and and there were that that's only a you know a small part of this whole that whole movement mm -hmm. and um i think sometimes there's the weird thing is we've been doing this for four years yeah we've really only scratched the surface oh yeah that's and true. uh we we try to make these these roadmaps uh of what we're going to cover ahead of time but a lot of times mm -hmm. we end up uh it's very it's very like uh like free form uh we we'll, we'll choose a topic for the next couple episodes based on what we're interested in at the moment yeah or, uh where what an episode we just did will give us an idea for the next episode but i know that uh est has been we've been talking about that maybe just off off air for a long time well i i should say full disclosure that i'm actually a fan so i'm actually like when er erhardt's thought in his and his i've actually listened to his i think i've listened to every lecture that's been released either Book boot, bootleg. There's many bootlegs, but on, on YouTube, there's an enormous amount of them. If you want to listen to him talk and listen to his um, his yeah, things, I, I find him very interesting. Now, I'm not saying I'm not saying he's perfect. I'm not saying he's without without flaws. And of course, his movement is complicated, uh, of course. But he he is an interesting person. Interesting, brilliant. With a, he was not a charlatan, without a doubt. Brilliant mind. Well. I'm, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, I think that the main controversy over Est was what happened actually at like the the events, and not in, not in particularly what the ideas were. Am I wrong about that? Um, that's one of the controversies. Yeah, I mean, a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about the treatment of people. Yeah, well, there's a number, number of things like the documentary, you know, of course, the Holocaust survivor or her is it whole was her mother a Holocaust survivor? I know there was there was some discussion of trauma and um when er Erhart is kind of tough with her and saying saying basically when are you gonna stop being a victim and start identifying yourself as a person and not as a woman or not as, as a Jewish woman in kind of a tough way and, and some people were offended by that and they, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I, I, mean, I respect objections to that, but again, it's decontextualized because she had just been in a five-hour session with with Erhart. Yeah, they had, they had many things were discussed. So it was in, in a context of them trying to figure her trying to solve problems in her life, and you know. But there were things there are things like that bathroom breaks and all that, and you know, and the yeah, yeah. there was things. But it, it is a vast. Alex, do you have any interest? I mean, you in the Interest in the the lore of Astadar, is that kind of Alex? Yeah, I, I I'm sorry, guys. I, I sometimes I get a, a little bit of a dropout there, and it um, 
but I was, I definitely am familiar with the, the movement just very slightly. We, we definitely have to bone up on that. Sorry if I, if I missed the, the specific question there, like I said, I, there was a dropout for a second. Oh no, I, we, I was asking you what you did know about it or what from your familiarity, well, like John Denver and Valerie Harper were big boosters of it. Raul Julia, you know, and, um, yeah, I mean, honestly, I just, just, I, it's, it's just a name I know sort of like in the context of the time Yeah, there, you know, um, I, I think it would be, I think that, that, could definitely be part of, I think Matt alluded to this earlier, um, but part of like something we could do, I guess, approach or, or find a way to sort of manage it topic wise into kind of like the right sized pieces or uh, come yeah. back. You know, that's, that's, that's one thing we try and do. I know that sometimes we'll have multi-part things or we'll have a topic yeah. that, you know, uh, that we have to sort of set aside until we can like sort of get our arms around it the best yeah. way. But, but I, that's definitely, yeah, just, just the therapeutics that came out in there. Um, there's a number of them, actually. We've never really had a whole episode on it. Um, but for example, we've, we've talked about a writer and, you know, bear with me if I'm kind of taking a tangent here, but we, we talk a lot about a writer named Robert Anton Wilson and he talks oh, yeah. about various therapeutic oh, yeah. things. He's, he's big on like Wilhelm Reich, for example, not that's, I know that's not exactly what we're talking about here, but just, you know, well, it's it, like it you, you really can't get into some of the big names of this time right. period without hearing these various therapeutic techniques pop up. And then there's Eureka. They're again, downsides or they're, or they're, is it the Eureka people or the, um, the Sinanon, the, um, yeah. Well, the oh, last, right, yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, I know recovery. Well, it's funny because Sinanon really did help Art Pepper, the, great jazz alto sax sax player saxophone yeah. and he went through I think, and he came I think out Philip K. Dick must have had something to do with them at some point because oh, i think he alludes to them under a different name in one of his books um can't put my finger on it i'm not sure if it's a scanner darkly or something like that my, but i think he i think he had some experience with with them <laughs> you now, know alex i, I mind to ask you and matt a question about how do you deal with revised information by which i mean I don't mean like revisionist ideological information. I just met new facts come out and, and um, I'm sure you folks are familiar with the new interpretation of Manson because of Tom O'Neill's book, right? Um, oh yeah. Yeah. What do you folks think about that? How we understand Manson? Cause I, I've been sort of scrappling with it because I don't, I read his book and really like it, but it's um, how much does really change or does it not change? Or does it, what do you think? I don't really know. Uh, it, it doesn't make Charles Manson into a good innocent victim. It doesn't do that. Sure, but well, it does. It does complicate the picture if the CIA was doing experiments or if the you know I don't know. Well, I'm a big fan of revision because, um, in general, I think that most of what people know about the time period is this kind of romanticized mythology mm -hmm. that that uh, is always kind of simplistic and lurid. And kind of muddles into true crime uh, reporting, but and so I, I generally just assume that there's a lot more going on that we don't know about. Right. So I'm always open to new information, and it would make total sense to me if Charles mm -hmm. Manson was involved with. Um, the CIA or even if 
Hmm. I mean, honestly, I, I haven't read Chaos. I, I think that Alex did, but I, I'm familiar with kind of the ideas. And um, yeah, that's Tom O'Neill's book. I think that's new. Yeah. Are we talking like the Sidney Gottlieb side of? No, we're talking about. No, we're talking um, about specifically Tom O'Neill's reporting. Um, his yeah. book Chaos. Yeah, which uh, it actually came out the same year as Once Upon a Time in Hollywood did, which is interesting. Interesting, they both came out the same year. I remember. Yeah, I, th I I remember that book was kind of inconclusive, and right. the um, I think the the thing that you have to grapple with with all this uh with a lot of revisions uh, mm -hmm. especially the ones involving any kind of intelligence is that mostly most likely you'll never know mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. it, the nature of the stuff is secret and right despite the fact that they're supposed to declassify things and and the church and even then it's dribs and drabs sometimes yeah I think. yeah um so I think it, there were there were some intimations and some interesting information, but it was inconclusive in the end. Um, but I generally just take the stance of it's definitely definitely possible that uh, because th there are um, stories we know actually happened that are so similar to that that I can totally picture it happening. Sure. Um, well, what's similar? It was well, it reminds me of an episode you did on that was a ne another Netflix documentary on uh, um, the the gentleman, the nuclear researcher who jumped out the window, right? The uh, oh, right, that? yeah, that's yeah, that's Errol the thing with Sidney Gottlieb, yeah, and, yeah, and MK Ultra and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that was Errol Morris film, right? Wormwood or Worm? Is that that, that the thing in the same? Yeah, that, I think yeah, that I remember was the TV they, show they yeah. recently did something. Yeah, one of those. Netflix uh, but it, but it, does, it does connect to a story like that. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Well, jo Jolly West is a guy who pops up in way too many convenient places to yeah. most of it right. be accidental. Um, the fact that he had an office at the San Francisco Free Clinic. Oh, yeah. And oh, well, I think that was in chaos, but. Uh, it's very much in chaos. A lot of the book is about Jolly West's life. and. But that that's. um. I don't know. You're on. You're on Twitter. Do you do you follow any of the parapolitical people on Twitter? Who me? Yeah. No, I don't. I'm very strict. I mean, not strict is not the word. I'm very. My Twitter stuff is all about the arts, so movies and novelists and and what you know. I don't really. I certainly don't get involved in any any um. Um. What's the word? You know, movements or you know, if I if I can help it, right? So I don't. Right. I tend not to get in. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that it's that one shouldn't. I'm saying that's just not really my beat. So I'm not as as far as I know. In other words, I don't know. Yeah, that's I am interested in journalism, but I'm also, as you know, as I said earlier, I'm a fairly mainstream. Yeah, I mean, I identify as a moderate and not a you know, I'm not far left or no, I'm not you know, I, I'm kind of try to be moderate in all things and then um, yeah, maybe to a fault, I guess, but I don't know. But I but I did I did think that Tom O'Neill's book was convincing. I, I I'm not I'm not saying that it wasn't, but. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, I was just gonna say that there are people on Twitter who spend their entire life yeah. tracking down every place Jolly West was connected. Oh my goodness! So, um, the, it's just a situation where we we pay this organization, the CIA, CIA mm -hmm. millions of dollars a year 
to do secret stuff and mm-hmm. then people just assume they're not doing anything it's it's really it's really kind of weird that, oh of course know. i mean i certainly agree with that I mean, alex what are your thoughts about that i mean that's a different about about just the whole issue of these new facts or, or sort of the you know about like coming maybe about how things about the idea of uh well my thought is i'll i'll answer that kind of just in a way of sort of how i view like how you have to tell or how you can tell a story about something so everything starts at one time it's current events and then at some point it passes into history but then then there's different layers of history and Uh and i think how we see history is reflected in like the moment in which we study it like how we view something in history today is different as how we looked at that topic as a historical topic even Uh 10 years ago, for example. And then if you, and then depending on how old the topic is, the further you go back, you get closer to um, current events and less about history. So I feel like, uh, I don't know if this is answering your question exactly, but mm-hmm. I sort of feel like it becomes, it's, there's always something changing. So I feel like yeah. for us, as far as our topics go, um, I don't know, we've never talked about revisiting a topic on the podcast, but as far as just like my own personal thoughts, and I'm not going to speak for Matt on this, but just like, I just feel like even studying history is a snapshot of the time in which you study it. Absolutely. Because you're dealing with like how people are defining history in that moment. Even though people think of history as unchanging. No. Well, what they, when they say that, so when people say they think of history as unchanging, what they mean, and they're right about this, is that the past is fixed because it already. Of course, happened. of course. But but of course, what you're going. I'm sorry, but you're going to go and say that there's some things that change radically. You you know how you go ahead. You were going to say something interesting about that. And I didn't oh, no, um, no. I was just I was just saying it's you know the, the of course the actual events are the same, but yeah. I just it's I guess I've been around. It, I've noticed just people talking about historical topics in a different sense now, because, you know, we, you want to try and be, um, there's just different ways to study history. And I've just noticed in my time of being interested in history, primarily as a lay person, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's interesting how the perspective of history changes. And I feel like it's always reflective of the time in which you study it, but it's good to have it. Like I remember thinking to myself when there was all this terrible stuff that happened after hurricane Katrina in 2005, I was thinking to myself, I can't wait for this to be in the past so I can look back on it historically with more of a dispassionate look. I mean, I, I should, I should again be more candid. I don't like the way things are discussed today. See, I don't like the way history is done today at all. Um, at least in the broad, you know, in terms yeah, of, I'm not even speaking so much about my opinion for what it's worth. I'm just right. looking at it as like, this is sort of ha- what it has become. Like I, I think yeah, but what, but what that, what that is, is something I, I often object to. And so the two things I don't agree. So, you know, there, there's some, there's some background propositions behind thing. Again, I'm talking about things that are fashionable, not necessarily mm-hmm. what's the best. I'm talking about the pop historians, you know, or the, the ones sure. that are seller list. What's very contemporary that I object is that, well, number one, they're all in, always ideological, by which I mean they think there's a good guy and a bad guy. Oh, sure, sure. Everything. But, but even more than that, it's not only – my objection isn't only that they think there's a good guy and bad guy because there are often villains in history. I concede that. But it's the way that that's the only thing they talk about. And the way they think sure. that that fact is the sole – 
causal factor when I, I actually don't think the world works that way at all. So for example, how I see Manson. So Tom O'Neill book is interesting. So I actually, as I said earlier, I think it's possible that Manson can both be not an innocent victim by which I mean, he has, he bears responsibility for how he treated those girls and what he did mm -hmm. there and all that. And I even think he bears responsibility in a way for those murders. Sure. I think all of that can be true. And yet at one and the same time, Manson's mind was, you know, fucked with or screwed with by these strange psychology experiments. I think that's all that can be. So I don't think it's either or. I think it's kind of both and if that, you know what I mean? Yeah, sure. sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I see it, but, that, but I don't know. I think the trend now is to find out what the truth is. So the thing now is to say, well, who's the real bad guy? And it's got to be just the CIA and, and then that, of course, we got to re. So then we have to rehabilitate Manson, and we have to be like the, we have to be like the people that love Manson, you know, because that's the thing now. Like the, his his poet his poetic sayings, and look at him positively, which I don't have any sympathy with. But sure, but, um, yeah. But. History is kind of an aesthetic art, though. Oh, and absolutely. So uh, to kind of piggyback on what Alex said is, the way you look at history is through the current whatever current lens and i feel like that's conditioned by aesthetics oh absolutely and, um so in his history is such a ambiguous thing that you two people can look at the same basic events and see two different <clears throat> things uh and i feel like it's kind of an aesthetic choice like if, if you if you see the past as a moral landscape to be judged and mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, dark and evil and that's how you're going to judge everyone. You're going to see everything that way. Right. Um, whereas I just think Alex and I see mm -hmm. it, see the complexity as aesthetically pleasing the, um, I guess it's kind of hard to, hard to describe. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, as far as the, the podcast goes, if if I can jump in here, and again, I'm not I'm not speaking for Matt, but I'm just piggybacking on on what that says, um, what, what Matt just said. It's like within our podcast, we're not really out to come to those conclusions for people. It's right. more. It's it's not to give sanction to anything, and it's not to condemn anything other than where it's patently obvious but yeah. i guess it's it's more like we try to take a value neutral if that's the right word or a, or sure. a more politics neutral take on it it's more just I mean, we cover so many things you know so yeah. it's it's like if our podcast was all about politics then i guess you, you know maybe it would be different but we just cover so many things i mean really at the end of the day our only parameters are like the time period oh yeah. you know we, we try to jump on all we in fact i think we really do try to mix it up we always say hey let's not do two of this kind of episode in a row let's make sure we're looking at something else or if we hear something let's put that in you want to you want to have variety but you know in the case where i learned things like i learned about steve allen mm -hmm. i learned that I also learned a lot because i didn't really have to say i didn't know a lot about the occult sure you folks have done so many episodes on not just robert anton wilson but all these um I guess they're movements. I don't know what you would call them and, and sure. works, of, works of literature. And those things I have to say did freak me out. I mean, I don't know if freak, <laughs> out is, freak out is the word, but they were, I was like, wow, you know, this is. <laughs> yeah, Are you, you talking about like our, our horror episode or episodes? Well, not just horror. that, but Illuminati and just. Oh, the, sure, sure, oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. And 
it's 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 kind of it's kind of fascinating. And often when I heard those, I'm like, I'm trying to fit this into my theory of self-expression. Maybe it does fit into that. Maybe it's just the different different forms that expression's taking that it takes us. Yeah. Well, um, what, what probably one reason why we approach the long seventies the way we do, um, and I'm not sure if Alex thinks about it this way, but I, uh, I'm interested in maybe I've never been an ancient history person. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm maybe the last couple hundred years are the most interesting to me. Right. Um, and so I have this definite understanding that this is not the first time that people got really weird. No. <laughs> you know, the, there's no. the the late 19th century, things got very strange. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And people joined uh, odd groups who did oh, yeah. uh, strange things. And <laughs> so I, I, I don't even really see the long 70s as an unusual period. I think it's unusual in because of uh, like specifically in its formative power over today. But you know, you, you know, know what, Matt, Matt, it's our weird. Yeah, it is. Our unusual. We had to deal with right. it more directly. So that's, yeah, sure. that's, that's a good <laughs> point. Yeah. It's well documented in different ways, which is, uh, which is a luxury yeah. you don't have when you study ancient history. Sure. Yeah. That's, that's um, so, the things that people consider a cult in the in the long seventies were were, were uh, normally bigger movements earlier in history. Sure, um, you know the Robert Anton Wilson stuff. Yeah. He's drawing from things that happened in the twenties and thirties and sure. uh, the late nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. Um, even even all the Reiki and therapy stuff. That, yeah, that's you know second generation freudian mm-hmm. and um so i mean history it's always hard to like uh it, it's it's hard not to say something started in the long 70s um but usually things don't just start you know they things become revisited transformed sure. renewed mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. That, that that's a lot a lot of the things that people consider spooky or occult about the long 70s really come from the early 20th century which was yeah. a much weirder time oh, yeah. than than the long 70s mm-hmm. in uh, all kinds of ways plus um, things get rediscovered you know i mean the the term reboot is a 20th century term but the concept yeah. isn't new um just to use an example um there's a series of books they're, they're paperback trade paperback books that were published i think largely in the 70s by a publisher called dover so i just i just call them dover books in shorthand but they're all reprints of older books but they were something that was interesting enough to, to a publisher in the 70s that they got reprinted so like a lot of them are like on like maybe herbal medicine or something like that. So, I mean, some of this stuff goes back millennia, but, you know, to somebody who's trying to market books in the 1970s and they know that part of their crowd is interested in the back to the earth movement or back to the land movement or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to drag out like, you know, this folk medicine book from such a, well, that reminds reminds me of my dad stuff he was into and his, his mother, my grandmother used to make her own. So, you know, and that kind of stuff. So, you know, Ewell Gibbons and, Stocking right, yeah, you'll give us, yeah. He's talking about various, um, but that right. stuff became mainstream right? in a way. Maybe now. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, yeah, so the, the, huge the yeah. is nothing new. The term reboot is new, but the, the concept is not new. Yeah. Is there is there a movie that's like the most 70s? Is there a single movie? I wonder, hmm. like it's not Saturday Night Fever, maybe. I don't know. Is there is there um I don't know. Uh, or in, in your different episodes you've covered, you like this movie. If you had an alien coming down and didn't know anything about time periods. And the alien wanted to say, speak our language and say, well, what was the seventies? What would you show them? What I would love show? to be able to think of one and have one at hand. But I think part of the beauty and like my own affinity for that time period is I can't say that because there, there are directions to go in. You know, there's like, there's like frothy comedies. There's, there's dark sci-fi, there's yeah. crime films, you know, and on and on. So I think the flowering of genres <laughs> in film alone it makes that question that you just put to us hard to answer, but I think it's also what makes it so fascinating to me. Well, it's yeah. a fun question in a way, right? I mean, uh, like taxi driver shaft. Um, yeah. Toward, towards the, like the later period, um, escape from New York mm -hmm. is definitely one of those. Um, you know, honestly, it, it tends to be the movies that are, that have withstood the, the test of time. The mm -hmm. ones that people still watch are the ones that in some ways encapsulate the time period the best. Mm -hmm. Um like the later ones, I think Ghostbusters encapsulates okay. the the end of the long 70s. That's interesting. What makes that film? Well, I mean, I'm I know you folks talked about the entrepreneurial. You use a really interesting episode you guys did where you said it exemplified an entrepreneurial spirit. Yeah, yeah, I think kind of solving people's problems and we'll come to your basement and that that whole thing is very 80s, right? That's a new, right? It's kind of like Yeah, yeah, it's this um it's it's also almost the way like uh class is brought back into like the discussion that these guys are they they kind of go from being academics to like blue collar schlubs. Mm -hmm. you know, that's um, a good point i can't remember who said it it was a some youtube channel that said that ghostbusters is basically a story about a bunch of guys who get fired from their college jobs and become exterminators yeah you know and uh it's a little bit like harold ramus and stripes singing that teaching yeah. school he's yeah. like you do wrong baby wrong he does that song right he says right. he says, does a sing along in his class with this big afro and yeah funny it makes me think about that He's like a yeah. The the, well, I mean, the thing about the seventies is that uh it's almost defined by the fact that you can't pick one movie. Yeah. Right. It's um like the sixties, you could maybe encapsulate in you know, a, a two or three movies, but the seventies, there's so many subcultures. Right, exactly. It's that that window is so much smaller in the 60s. And we I think it starts off when we have an episode where we talk about like the end of the Hayes Code, basically. And, oh, and, and I love director that. Well, that was cinema. like, well, that was like Hollywood history. That was wonderful. I remember. So, so, so with that in mind, I mean, that's exactly why it's so hard, because it's like you you it you, you have these much smaller windows mm -hmm. in past decades of what I'm going to go ahead and call good cinema or good film or whatever. Sure. But in the seventies, you just get all this stuff. I mean, sure there's shit too in there, but that's also part of the fun. I mean, I don't know. It's just, I guess I'm just showing like my, my own like personal, you know, interest yeah. in it or whatever, but it's just, it's, it's the depth and the breath. It's crazy for a decade, you know, 
And and it is. Alex and, Alex and Matt, I is, want you guys to, guys to think about the fact that I was eight years old and I saw "Let Me Die a Woman" <laughs> yeah. in a theater. <laughs> yeah. As an eight-year-old boy, that's some with a 42nd Street audience. That's just not, <laughs> you could call my parents' parenting into question with that. I don't know. You know the movie I'm talking about. Did we get a, we get a Doris? Yeah. Let me well, speaking of like 42nd Street theaters at various yeah. times, the 70s were also the time where you had like the, the, the first kind of mainstreaming of porn you know the idea of like people who got get dressed up and go out on a date to behind the green door or the devil and miss jones or, or deep or, or something like the, that the private afternoons of pamela mann or, or um uh the different rally metzger um mary paris pictures uh opening a misty beethoven and um oh right yeah the whole those were the movies those were the films yeah well, that, yeah, so you had a lot of a that, lot of crazy. I think also too, people think that certain genres started in the 21st century. I know Matt and I have kind of made a joke before, like grousing about younger folks sometimes and being like, "Oh, they they think like something was just invented or they heard about something for the first time recently." But it's like there's all kinds of like, weird genres that got their start in the during the 70s, time. like you know when when like the Saw movies and Hostel and stuff oh, those those still from the long like, 70s. That's all. You know, it's like yeah, you say, well, that's a, a 21st century movie about oh. you know, whatever. It gets the torture porn name, but it's like, but then there were all those those cannibal movies, you know. Or I mean, I, I, footage, I, I, I you, know? you guys agree with me on that. I think of Last House on the Left and. Right, exactly. That's, There's oh, that. Yeah, that's a, that's an, that's a better example. But even the concept of a found footage movie, it didn't start with um no. the Blair Witch Project. Yeah, yeah, Cannibal Holocaust. There you exactly. Go. And what else? Not that that's Holocaust? a good movie, but I'm just saying. You know, again, right. there was the the creativity is is just like astounding it's sometimes really. when you when you put it in its context and you look at right. what came before and what came after. Well, that gets to it earlier. I think Alex, it was your point that there's a there's like things are remake remaking of remaking or remade. Mm -hmm. It's kind of things have a kind of a copycat quality. Yeah. 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 Sure. And maybe the Saw films are like that. Maybe they're copying a B movie or, or you know copying. Like, well, you could really push boundaries like further and in more ways. Like there was just more boundary pushing per year. I would say yeah. in the long seventies, like prior to that. Unless you really dig up like some obscure like pre-code stuff, but just you know, it was just incredible. I mean, just when you look at just a mm -hmm. year that a given film came out, I mean, it just created a a vast amount of stuff that people would inevitably remake or knock off or whatever. It, <laughs> what does these company fit in? Is these company going to be? How will people see that in the future? I don't know. I kind of because it's Suzanne Summers and now John Ritter and. and Jeez. That that's actually really interesting too from from a, a building a TV show standpoint. It's funny. Mm -hmm. There's about a 10-year gap between like the Munsters and Three's Company. Right. And what's interesting is in the I remember seeing some some of the episodes of like the Adams family or the Munsters or something, and there's only one plot, and it's just the weirdest thing. There's no subplots in that 60s TV. Mm -hmm. And then by the time you get to 1977 or whatever with Three's Company, like there's there's a subplot. Like you're following Jack for part of it, but then you're following um, Janet for part of it. And they're totally, you know, they're totally different plots that they've worked into it. So even just like the way, and I guess maybe you give, um, who is it? Norman Lear, you know, credit for that. Cause he's the guy behind so many of these things, but, uh, you know, just, just even in that, like that, that 10 year window, like just how much, even just a, a, a crappy broadcast TV show changed. 
Right. Well, I mean, I do think that genre, art forms can die and, and be reborn and live. I don't, I don't think that I, 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 you know, I, I often think historically about art, right. And aesthetics. I often think that there are art forms that are eternal for lack of a better word, even though it may sound pretentious, but not many, not many are eternal and mm -hmm. many die a death. You know, like we might see, we might be seeing now today the death of the sex comedy because of political changes that actually the people, it's not so much that people would be offended and not laugh. They actually might not even get the joke yeah. as their, their whole conception of what sex is or what human bodies are might change so radically. And that the humor depends on more of an old fashioned, right? It depends on you, you know, coming out of the 50s, 60s, 70s, different era. Well, um, uh, I'm I mean, just out loud, but the, but, um, a lot of the art and creative work that was produced in the long seventies depended on transgressing boundaries. Right. Mm -hmm. And they really pushed it as far as they could. Yes, they did. They broke all the boundaries. Yes, they and did. then what do you do? I think that's what they're running. They've been running into for since maybe the mid two thousands when the, mm -hmm. the crazy wacky sex comedy and like Tropic Thunder and those mm -hmm. movies came out after that, they're just like, what, what boundaries are left? <clears throat> there, there really, there really isn't anything that uh, is easily, easily accessible. So well, just like musicals go in and out of fashion. Like, I mean, I, when La La Land came out, which is a movie I really loved, I thought, wow, we're going to see a return of the MGM musical or the Jacques Demy, but that never yeah. took. And it not only didn't win the award, it never, I never saw it. Well, it's really, it's really hard to get people interested in wholesome entertainment now. I, I mean, after, after the long, after like the seventies and eighties and nineties with the Tarantino stuff, you oh, know, yeah. it's, it's a lot easier to get people's attention with true crime than mm -hmm. Hallmark movies. You know, it's just appeals to a different part of the brain. Well, it's role also. I think how people saw its role, like in the very beginning when we started rolling here, Mitch, you you made a joke about a very special episode. Yeah, and it's like the, those don't exist anymore. Like I remember catching, uh, uh, like a nine hundred two one zero episode from the first season, you know, from the early nineties, and there were still like life lessons, you know, being pushed just, by the characters. <laughs> when isn't that funny? I'm well. Guess what I'm watching, rewatching now is all I'm in, in binge watching nine hundred two one zero, and I'm on season. <laughs> Seven or eight, but yeah, you're right. So, what episode would that have been? The one where a lot of it involves Dylan's drug use, right? Dylan's recovery, right? Kind of the uh, yeah, they, they had a few different episodes. I just remember one where like somebody uh early on in the show had a, a racist friend, and you know, um, Jason Priestley's character called him out on it or something absolutely. like that. So, well, not, not only that, but Donna's mom is racist. Donna's mom, yeah, right. Tori Spelling's mom objects to her dating, dancing with a African-American football quarterback, you know, at the party, we don't be dance, seen dancing with him. Really very, um, um, yeah, they're very, it's a very- uh, Yeah, but I, it's interesting how that stopped, be, or maybe if it was in, in TV shows, just to use that example, you, you had to do it in a different way that, that cause that stuff feels a little clumsy now. It, it seems very much like, you know, it got rid, wrote in and you, and you sort of see the part in the show where like, okay, this is the lesson part. You know yeah, what will never tell you know, no, this is the episode show that will always give me the creeps. And Gordon Jump is an amazing actor. And you know what I'm talking about. Gordon Jump is more known for WKRP, the boss. Right, right. But he's the pedophile in the different shows. Oh. So 
the bicycle man. Oh yeah. Yeah. Go back and watch that different strokes. That is a two part that, that one, that one is like a horror. That's a, that's a frightening, that to me frightens me. Just going, go to just performance and, and, and Gary Coleman and Todd Bridges. That's an amazing. Well, th- that was when kids stopped being free, free range. That's right. And, and started mm-hmm. being, um, supervised. Yeah. Basically zoo, zoo animals, you know, <laughs> uh, when yeah. every parent thought their kids <laughs> were going to be kidnapped by Satanists or files right. or serial killers. Well, it, it occurred to me only very recently that the term latchkey or latchkey kid, like, isn't a, like when you say that it means children of a certain age in a certain point in human history, it's not even like an ongoing thing. You know, yeah. like when you say latchkey kid, you're not talking about kids past a certain year, even like you're probably talking about Gen that- X kids at a certain like window of time. Well, let me ask you an informational question. Is that because they have different means of monitoring now? Is it computers now or phones or what is it now? Or Right. I don't mm. know what they do now because I'm not a, uh, you, what, what's, what's the change? Is the technology change, right? Mainly or, it seems like the, it seems like the kids are a lot busier now. Well, yeah, they have all these projects and after school, yeah, they got it right. Well, that's yeah. also why, why um like working a job is not a thing so much. I'm not going to turn into like, you know, Andy Rooney complaining about like kids not having after school jobs here, but it's just like, it's just an observation. Like, you know, uh, I, I think Matt and I both had after school jobs in high school. Oh, yeah. uh, I don't think that's a thing much anymore with really? high school kids. So what are they far doing? Less, uh, are they doing? Well, I like, think they have other stuff um, to do like resume building stuff or stuff. I don't know. I mean, I guess if you're late enough in high school, you're trying to get into college. Well, a lot yeah. of kids at least. And then you got to do the stuff to build that up. Like, um, like doing community service projects, you know, like I remember I was working, uh, somewhere and there were kids that were there to do community service. And, and my mm-hmm. first thought is, oh, I thought a community service is what you did when you got caught shoplifting. And they're like, no, <laughs> yeah, just, yeah. just what they're doing to bulk up their resume for their college application. Like they were, you know, handing out stuff, you know, to the younger kids or working. Well, all all or of these like things, Alex, all these things you're mentioning are all plot points in Beverly Hills 90210. There's. So when, so when Steve Sanders does things wrong, he has to do the community service and has to, right. has to work at the prison and work at the hospital and clean bedpans. And he tries to find a way to get out of it and cheat that too. And that's kind of, yep. cause he's, he's the fuck up or he's the, but prison. by the end of the show, he's a dad driving a minivan. So, <laughs> you know, you know, it's a funny show that is so foundational to modern entertainment uh, is Buffy the vampire slayer. Um, you know what's really, really important for me to finally watch that I've never seen that. So I've never seen it either. Oh, so you and Alex. So what's the big, the only, you know, Matt, the only thing I've seen is the movie of Donald Sutherland. Well, that's right. Yeah, that that was good. But you're saying it's this whole other phenomenon. Well, so it's not that I've seen that show Mm -hmm. so much. I think I've watched a few episodes, maybe a season. Yeah. But everybody who's making content creative work now has seen that okay and Mm -hmm. that's a big part of um like the the quippiness of movies the the irony the detached sardonic humor the so you're saying buffy became like the playbook for yeah it's it's like uh, that and harry potter were what a lot of hollywood people were raised on Uh, yeah sure are you saying Don't it's a know. template then for like how you see its tentacles or it's um yeah yeah in 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 so when did Beverly Hills nine hundred two one zero come out when did that start? it came out That's, I think in like 
1990, right? Thereabouts. Uh, first episode is 91, I think. So that's 91. That's, that's and then I think it finished show. in 2000. There you I go. Know. That that show defines the 90s. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So so it's like these two divergent, um, uh, like trend trends, and mm-hmm. the one that gained traction in Hollywood and pop culture was Buffy, yeah. and not 90210. Oh yeah, um, 90210 might might have been a show that ran through the 90s, but but my impression of it was it it owed much more to things before it. You know, it was it was a soap opera, really. I guess from the get go, in one form or another, and as the <laughs> high school aged characters became adults it became more of a soap opera i see yeah i don't know i was always more of a baywatch guy no i didn't watch any of that stuff in real time i watched uh 90210 uh Baywatch. Well, i mean that, run, certainly... and then i just went back and saw some of the earlier ones well if we're talking about you know female beauty but baywatch well both shows i mean well of course baywatch is is remarkable in that you know pamela anderson and different well, that was its selling point, really. I mean, you know, that's right. That was, and yeah, what that I was... didn't know, what I didn't know about Baywatch is that David Hasselhoff. So, David Hasselhoff has a has a pop career, right? He's a singer. So, have you right, yeah. right? Have you folks seen Revenge of the Cheerleaders with David Hasselhoff? No, no, no. That's a must for your show. You got to do so. Revenge of the Cheerleaders, nineteen seventy seven. David the Hoff, David Hasselhoff. Okay, it's a disco high school musical kind of show movie. About these cheerleaders, Rainbow Smith is in it. It's got a great cast, and, and um, Cheryl Smith, who did a lot of um, Pam Greer movies, a lot of. Well, I can't. Movies. I can't believe we haven't done anything with the Hoff. Yeah, actually, that's true. He's kind of. You know what's interesting? Under the radar. I have an anecdote here. Speaking just since you mentioned disco in high school in the same sentence, there. <laughs> yeah, something uh, you. What's know. interesting? Is there's that late '70s movie that we've probably all three seen, uh, Rock and Roll High School, which you know features the Ramones. Oh um, yeah. Is that the story goes that that's actually came, came out of the, the Corman studios, but um, yeah, it was supposed to be disco high, right? Exactly. It was supposed to be <laughs> disco high school. And at the last minute, there was sort of like, I don't know, let's try maybe the punk rock band here. Let's try rock and roll high school. Yeah, exactly. So I, I think that's just like t- totally changed whatever like impact rock and roll high school has on like whatever it had an impact on ever since. With the I have, to, I have to confess. You guys, I'm a disco person more than a rock and roll person. So I'm I like them both. I, I but, but having a movie built around the Ramones is cool because you know oh, there were movies with disco I, in them. I, I, well, I actually too. love the Ramones, but that's a whole separate the Ramones are kind of unique. Uh, but but what I'm saying is that one of the things that's made me so happy is the rehabilitation of disco with that BG's mm-hmm. documentary and all that. Yeah. I'm so yeah. happy that's happened. You see people that originally were disco sucks, and now you know these guys are pretty good, you know, and then sure. they what do you think about that whole reexamination of Stigwood? And it's nice, huh? That it's kind of people going disco back. was great. I don't really I, I feel like the disco rock and roll rivalry was like uh Betamax and VHS. <laughs> they, were, they, they were just too competitive. They were competing for market share. Yeah. And the whole burning disco records were destroying them, blowing them up was um that's a, that's like marketing. Sure. Yeah. Um, and, but like they don't compete for the same experience. Disco is, right. you know, a, da- a dancing. Uh, I think of it as the f- as the last pre-electronic dance music. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because there's still instruments involved, right? There's still trumpets. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, and you might have like the, the analog synth, but other than that, you've got like the full band. 
you got yeah. a Fender Rhodes piano and a bass guitar. Yeah, and, and like usually just awesome bass lines, you know, and, and like it, it's got its own drum beat and everything. Now, I think musically, if you kind of take it out of like the pop culture thing and just look at it from a musical form, it's really cool because it touches on a lot of stuff. You know, it comes out of soul. It comes out of just other things, um, it, you know, funk. Uh, well, you, you, felt, you folks did a number of episodes. You did a Funkadelic and more than one, I think. Uh, we did a Funkadelic, oh, yeah, yeah. Funkadelic yeah. episode. Yeah, we've talked about um, soul soundtracks uh, when, oh, yeah. when 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 soul singers just got handed the keys to do the yep. soundtrack to yep. movies. Yep. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a great the 70s actually is very is much more consistent with soul and soul adjacent music than it is for rock music because it it, it starts off great and then it gets kind of crappy in the middle and then it, it kind of morphs into different kinds of rock and roll towards the end with like punk oh, that, rock that, and that, that, and that reminds me i'm at a piano here maybe i should play something uh 70s style music for you folks what do you think should i do yeah it? yeah i don't know sure. what to do i improvise but see make sure the sound you can hear it can you hear it yes yes okay i'll do something you have a wah pedal on that? No, this is all acoustic. So you have to. I apologize. Okay. The lack of <laughs> the lack of phase shifters and the lack of neutron vibrations. <laughs> That sounds seventies to you. Oh, right, yeah. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I'm definitely getting some soundtrack vibes out of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was great. Not enough people play piano anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. It's kind of fun, you know. It's um, you know, but now, of course, if you mm -hmm. could have done that on a Rhodes and run that through oh, a phaser, it yeah. would have been even <laughs> you know, better. But it was it was excellent on its own. <laughs> you should uh, you should do the intro music to one of our episodes sometime. Well, you did. You come, guys. Come up. Well, how do you source your? You do some interesting things in your in your. You know, um, 
That's I all make it. I make it with samples. Okay. Yeah. Because I know I, the very first episode you had some kind of a. It was like some born again Christian thing. Was that what that was? Some kind of a, some politician was talking about. Yeah. Remember that? It was like some dude. I think it was one of those evangelist dudes talking about cleaning up the schools or something. There. Yeah, yeah. We had. Was- um, <laughs> I, I made a. I think I used an old. I used some old recordings we had. Oh. <laughs> put them together to make yeah. the music, and then I put some. Uh, I think I had Nixon in there, Jim Jones. And oh then, really. Uh, and then I kind of went off the rails and I started making a different song for every episode. Well, that, that part is fun, but you did source some kind of some things that reminded me of a lot of the evangelical stuff, yeah. you know, and yeah. of course you have the satanic panic and all that. That's part of that too. And yeah, well, yeah we another, talk story, another story, how born again Christians took over the world, or at least the U S is amazing. And politics. Actually, and there's, a, about, uh? yeah, there's a sub, I was just gonna say there's a subtext actually to that a little bit. We do an episode on, um, I think it was the 1980, the Norco shootout and bank robbery. And mm-hmm. the guys who were behind that, the robbers were part mm-hmm. of, at least one of them was part of the Jesus people movement, which was sort that's of like right. fundamentalist hippies. Yes, that's right. Yeah. No, I mean, it is weird that things that happened 2000, 3000 years ago still affect everyone's life. <laughs> well, I'm amazed at the rise to power because I didn't, you know, Frank Zappa predicted it. Cause as you know, you could see footage of Frank Zappa as yeah. early as 1974 worried about theocrats taking over the U S way so way back before there was a Reagan and before there was a moment, he's like, worried this thing's going to happen. I don't know how Frank Zappa saw that coming. He got insight. Well, right I mean, now. there's a pendulum theory. Alex talks about it every once in a while. The pendulum always swings back sure. and forth, you know, or, order chaos. Yeah. Um, pro- it, it swings, like, it, it swings yeah. like England swings. Roger Miller, right? England swing. What is that yeah. song? Like the song? <laughs> I don't know. Swinging London. Um, but <laughs> I, I feel like, I don't know that I would have seen it if I was during the, you know, if I was an adult during the seventies, but looking back it, uh, it's somewhat predictable, just the excesses. And then of course, well, I, I, when I think of excesses, I think of those people as the excesses. So I'll give you, well, yeah, example. yeah. I would, well, <laughs> I, I, I'd spent a year in the seventies. My, I had a problem staying in schools. I was kicked out of a lot of schools cause I had a lot of, you know, those are rough, you know, rough times. Seventies kidding. I I did a year in a, in, in an evangelical school, one year, hmm. and that was like a nightmare. I mean, I was don't even I don't even begin. So I remember the the principal would give sermons in the morning about the evils of the Mary Tyler Moore show, that the Mary Tyler Moore oh. show was satanic, and how Mary Tyler Moore, you know, couldn't do basically anything on their own and how it was poisoning the minds of young women. And and then the English teacher used to use expressions. The English teacher worshiped Joe Don Baker. And she was, she was watching the show. I, I, I shied with Joe Don Baker and her favorite movie was like, this is an English teacher. Why would an English teacher be into Joe Don Baker? You know, and a, a female English teacher, no less. And she was like, I like that Joe Don Baker. She says, you know, I like at the end of the episode, she says, you done good boys. You done real good. When they caught the, <laughs> caught the bad guy, and I'm thinking, boy, this is a different kind of way to teach English. Yeah, <laughs> so I always think of Joe Don Baker as the uh, crooked police chief in Fletch. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I it's funny. Well, he's a good, a really good actor, and I like Walking Tall, right? And 
I even like my namesake, Mitchell, you know, as a movie, I guess. But you ever yeah. seen Mitchell? No, no. Yeah, it's a Joe Don Baker. But I don't know. I just I just didn't mean to go out of tire but it's just, one person's excess. Excess can come from different. Well, it always yeah, people always push it too far. They, yep. they push it far enough that the people who uh, don't like that are motivated enough to push it back the other direction. And yeah. it just goes back and forth. Um, Cause nobody knows when it's too far until it's too far. Yeah. I mean, and oh, it, interesting. It, historically it didn't last that long, mm-hmm. you know, by the mid nineties, it was a free for all again. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's, you know, basically you can count on America to roll back and forth. You know, you only have to wait 10 more, 10 years. <clears throat> right. Matt, you have Raquel Welch on your icon here. I love it. Lon Sevy says Raquel <laughs> yeah. Welch and Myra Breckenbridge, right? Is that what that, who that is? Uh, that's who that is. Is that what that's? Uh, that's who that woman is. And that's the film. Oh, it is. It is Raquel Welch. I don't know what movie it's from. I have at least two early Raquel Welch books in my position. One from the mid seventies and one from two celebrity books of hers. If you're interested in her, that's sort of thing. Oh yeah. Um, I love Raquel Welch. Yeah, on the Dick Cavett show, you can see old. Um, you guys, fans of the, all the Dick Cavett shows, they have the post on YouTube. You could see. Um, oh yeah, Sly yeah Stone yeah. and Sly and the Family Stone are on there. Oh and, no. Yeah, my um, my favorite Dick Cavett moment was when he was interviewing. Um, oh, what's the actor's name? I'm terrible with actors' names. Um, he always played a like a a tough guy like military character Robert Blake no in, in any case he was he Where's was inter- I'm sorry I'm just trying to do he, he was interviewing uh this actor and the actor was smoking a cigarette on the set and explaining how he killed people with his bare hands uh, in World War II oh interesting and and uh it wasn't oh, Chuck Heston it was um God, no but someone no. like Chuck Heston it was someone of that of that yeah yeah mm-hmm. um Boy, I, I really should know who I'm who I'm talking about. That's but, funny because that's kind of the isn't that sort of the backstory of uh, Father Yode, aka Jim Baker. Yeah, yeah. And then of course that gets turned into the Cliff Booth character backstory from Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Oh yeah, yeah. Did you uh, what what Mitch? What do you think of that movie? I'm assuming you you enjoyed it. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh. I love that film. I mean, I, I, I could not, I, I'm, well, you guys did a, a really nice episode on it. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's his best film. I, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Well, he thinks, yeah. he, he thinks it's his best film. He said that about his own film. Yeah. yeah. I think it's fantastic. It was the only one of his movies that made me feel kind of sad. Yeah. You know, um, usually his movies are kind of like a fun ride, but yeah, the, that, that was kind of wistful. Yeah. Well, it's a very mature film. It has a maturity of intelligence and, and emotion. Yeah. That he that a lot of the films lack, purposefully lack, I guess, or willfully lack. Right. That that movie is a deep film. That's a deep film about America and about it's it's almost I would say that it's actually like the white album is cinema. It's almost like Joan Didion. There's a yeah. feeling that wistfulness you talk about is what I get from reading Joe Dindian's. Slashing towards Bethlehem or White Album. Yeah, for sure. 
you know, I don't know if he's then of course he wrote the, the, the novelization of it, which really mm-hmm. just provides like, just like, you know, even more backstory and depth to it. Yeah. It really yeah. takes it. It's really not a novelization of the film. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really an, an expansion of, of it in novel form. The the interesting thing about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is that I I saw it in the theater twice. Me too. And I could tell yeah. that seventy or eighty percent of the audience didn't know what was going to happen because uh, they didn't know what the story of the the Manson uh, murders. Uh, so wow. they they didn't understand the the tension. You know that the movie moves day to day, and you get closer, mm-hmm. and then it says that the date of the murders and I was sitting there going, Oh, this is what is going to happen. This is insane. And I could tell that nobody else felt that because <laughs> they just <laughs> didn't understand like the, what was looming over the movie. It's a different way of experiencing the movie. It's a legitimate way. I mean, again, that's another, that's a case where a movie could yield different, different feeling, different. And a way he designed his movie to be right to, for different audiences. Right. Don't you think? So the, those right. in the know and those that us in the know are, those and it works. It yeah. works for both mm. audiences, I would guess. When when you say, yeah, I mean, I don't know how somebody who didn't didn't know the story of the Manson murders would have experienced that, though. I feel like they wouldn't have felt the same tension, uh, sure, or understood uh, like the feeling of release. Like people talk about how violent the end was, mm-hmm. um, and I feel like if you didn't know the actual story you would get you wouldn't get like the feeling of you know joy that they just got slaughtered by the stuntman when they in real well, life you, they, you, they, you, well so i i'm 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 contradicting what i said earlier you would miss an important you would miss that wistful quality right you wouldn't because it would be lost on you right it would just be yeah it would just be a preventing these killers right it wouldn't mean right it won't have the sure. same meaning yeah. I don't know. I, sometimes I feel like our show is, is an attempt to provide that kind of context. Absolutely. Yeah. Now. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the episode I'm embarrassed to say I have not listened to yet. And it's because I'm really savoring it. Do look for is, is your, is your show on thief with Jim's car? Oh, oh yeah. 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 And that's one of your more recent ones. Right. So yeah. Um, that, I got to listen to that. Yeah. That, yeah, that movie we, was great. We, we referenced that it's funny because um well there, there's nothing here to spoil for you but the the soundtrack uh for thief is done by tangerine dream and then yep. we have another episode on synthesizer soundtracks um so that it's it ends up they, they kind of one references the other a bit just because sure. we, we bring up these different artists and, and the work they did in this time period so it's interesting though the take on it uh, if you have a chance uh I don't know how you'll watch it or, or, or if you've already seen it and you're just waiting to see the episode, but if you get a chance, if you see the the criterion collection DVD for thief, um, it has a little featurette where they talk with one of the members of tangerine dream. And he, he kind of lays out how they yeah. sort of got tapped to yeah. do the, the soundtrack. And that's worth a watch. And I say this as someone who doesn't normally get a lot out of like the little bonus features on DVDs, but that's actually kind of cool. Well, I do if it's a commentary track. I'm sure you guys do too. I mean, some great directors' commentaries. And those are- yeah, and this is really just a featurette. You know, it's just like a half-hour interview. Um, you know, just separate that they did for, yeah. the, for the disc. I mean, that's um, amazing. 
Well, Robert, the character actor Robert Prosek, is that his name? The gangster, the the what a oh, great yeah. Yeah. Uh the boss. I mean, mm -hmm. he just a one of those great villains in film. I mean, just scare the shit out of you when he leans up and says, <laughs> You're mine, I own you. I can sell you put your wife out here and sell her out to Yeah. I'm gonna great. do this and and it's a little bit like Christopher Plummer and the silent partner, you know, one of the great one of the great villains. Yeah, and it's un unexpected too. Oh yeah, true. It is. I I to Yeri in the getaway, right? You're kind of a mustachioed. It's a different kind of villain, but you know, there's, there's all kinds of villains. Well, there's all, all the '70s villains and predators are so many. Yeah, yeah. it's funny that we did two films uh, from from this time period that had James Caan as the star. Yeah. Because I was just talking, uh, not to Matt even, but to someone else. Uh, just at work and uh, talking about how he didn't have the, I, I feel like he didn't have the follow, like the, like the multi-decade after that career that, that other people did who got their start in the same time period or like his contemporaries in the long seventies. Like, it seems like I was, I don't know for what reasons, but it just seems like I would have expected to see Khan more like in latter years. I mean, he was obviously in some film, but well, he, he, he didn't he, have, well, I, I, from what I understand, he did have personal issues and, and, and okay. Uh, but then he made a comeback, I think, in the '90s, uh, like a lot of people did, right? He sort of did. Uh, isn't he in the Freshman with Marlon Brando? I don't know. He he he. Well, he does the Dogville. He does Lars von Trier uses him, and he does does um things like that. But I, but I got to meet his son Scott Kong because back when oh I, yeah well back when I had money I don't now I had a shirt maker and um, my shirt maker was the same as Scott Kong's. I was having a shirt made in New York and there was and I, I didn't know it was Scott Kong. I was talking about James Kong. It's like. <laughs> he just finished wrapping Hawaii Five O. Does he still do that? I don't know. It's a show. I don't Probably know. Probably not. Um, and he was saying he was so impressed with how much I knew about his dad. I said, "Your dad." I said, "Your dad is the greatest actor," and he got so so much pride that, well, yeah, my dad was one of the greats. Yeah, kind yeah of, for sure. Kind of, yeah, kind of masculine in the film, kind of a little bit like I have to say, Quentin Tarantino and Brad Pitt. There's a little bit of James, Jimmy Kahn and Brad Pitt's performance. And, uh, oh, yeah, I could see it. Mm -hmm. Once upon a time, I think. Uh, yeah, if that film had been made, you know, however many years earlier. Oh, sure. yeah. Totally. That's a whole whole other issue. You know, the representation of different genders and. Um, um, right. Yeah. Yeah, I, I honestly, I, I don't watch. I pretty much just watch movies from our time period at this point. And then uh, here, here and well, there. That, that's all, that's all you need to watch. I mean, why would you want to watch? I mean, to be, to mm -hmm. exaggerate, why would you want to watch anything else? I mean, I mean, yeah. I, is there a movie that's as good as straight time or as good as um, that can't or, or dog day afternoon that's come out in the past 10 years? No, there isn't. I mean, if we're being honest, there's nothing. Yeah. There's but, nothing, I mean, or, or the parallax view or, uh, Three Days yeah. of the Condor or, or Taxi Driver. I mean, these are phenomenal movies, and they're just not. Uh, Woman Under the Influence, Chinatown, Last Detail, uh, Coming Home. I mean, look at those movies. It's a tough act to follow. Yeah. Yeah. You could spend the rest of your life just watching 70s movies. Oh, yeah, totally. And be happy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm always stashing away ones like on a queue or a watch list for you yeah. know you've, you've got like a streaming service and you can kind of park stuff there. And I'm always I always feel like I'm parking more of them than I could ever watch. 
<laughs> so I achieved what I wanted to achieve. I reached the lawn 70s running time. Oh, right. He's <laughs> now 520. We started at what, three? Three so o'clock. That's two, about two and a half hours to that. That's so I think it's time that we should conclude, right? I think that's a wrap, right? That's that's I've honored your 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 specifications. <laughs> is, there good, any, yeah. is, there, is there anything either one of you want to say before we finish or any, about anything? Lawn seventies or anything else? Or? Not not me. I think uh yeah, it just, was yeah, thanks discussion. for having us on and and uh just kind of getting the, the conversation started and going and it's been fun it's been a lot of fun i really appreciate your generosity of time and spirit too because that's important oh, yeah. thank, sure. you. thank you thank you yeah, i appreciate it and i look forward to airing it and getting more 70s uh people oh yeah cool. yep thank um, you definitely yep thank you very much and um I'm, I guess terrible, people, I'm terrible at endings. This no, I was going to say uh, for, the ending for people, the I don't know how you normally do it, but I mean, you know, people can can find our podcast, I think, just through the normal, just I'll put the shameless plug in here. Uh, yes. You know, so uh, I think people can find our podcast just through the usual channels. Well, yeah, Matt is we, our producer of records. So is there any place in particular they should look? Or just, just well, pod, well, any podcast just uh well we have a, we have we have a system so when we release this because this is not live this is memorex so when sure because it's not not memorex is not live when we release it we're going to have a little thing where we have all of your information to spread the oh, word cool. oh cool so great. we always do oh, that yeah. both verbally and, and 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 do pr so that's all built in so i thank great. you great yeah you, thanks too. very much and yeah. have, a, have, a, have a safe and pleasant tomorrow as jane Curtin would say you too it was great <laughs> yeah, to right. meet you <laughs> All right, yeah. Bye. Thanks so much. Yeah. All right. Bye. Take care.